Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul, all of the time. And remember, folks, this is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Right, folks, now that we're back in the swing of things, I wanted to get back to some of the original side series material that we've been doing here on the podcast and you really can't get more OG than a good old-fashioned homemade handcrafted free-range hot hits and cold cuts side series episode of Paul or Nothing can you? If you don't remember the format this is where we go through the non-album material that we don't get to fully cover on a regular episode. Now that is quite a broad spectrum that covers B-sides and bonus tracks, a.k.a. the uh, official stuff, as well as some of the uh, unofficial, unreleased and bootleg material. As I've mentioned before, there's less and less uh, unofficial supplementary material as we move forward through time, You know, as McCartney's security gets ever more modern, but thankfully... Not only are we only just transitioning into the 80s, you know, the, the dawn of the modern period, but we're still technically in the wings phase of the band. So in terms of bootlegs and hot hits and cold cuts, the ship is still as leaky as ever. And yes, uh, as a side note, it's also nice that this is another little wings adjacent episode. It's, it's not going to focus on them at all, but, you know... We've, we've fully covered Wings on this show, and it's always nice to return to them. I do love that band, don't you? Anyway, folks, this is a pretty easy episode. Nothing too complicated as per. Hopefully you'll hear some McCartney music that you've never heard before, and I bet there's at least one or two on here that the majority of you have never heard before. And even if you have heard them all, then hopefully you might just learn something about them instead And with that, let's move on to the songs themselves, shall we? In the last episode of this side series, which was absolutely yonks ago, we covered the end of the 70s and the Back to the Egg sessions. So I'm not awarding any prizes to anyone who's been able to look ahead on the calendar to work out that today we're going to be covering the bit after that, a.k.a. from 1980 to 1983, which can be divided into four subcategories. Those are... The iconic McCartney 2 sessions at Paul's Spirit of Ranashan Studios in Scotland, or as other people might call it, his house. Then we have the Puggins Hall sessions at, you guessed it, Puggins Hall, with more on that later, in early 1980. Then we have the pre-tug of war home demos, when Macca was stockpiling songs in the summer of 1980 uh, for those sessions. And then we have the tug of war sessions themselves at Air Studios in Montserrat that took place in early 1981. This was a very fertile period for McCartney as he was really trying to come to terms with his identity as an artist at this point, you know, kind of both as a band member and as a solo artist. This Wings thing is giving him doubts, you know, but he still wants to make an album and he kind of still wants to work with Denny at least. And he's he's thinking about doing stuff 
without wings. He thinks about doing stuff with them as well. And this is all rushing through his head and all the permutations of where these decisions could take him in the future with his career. Results in Maka truly experimenting and innovating in a way that he might not have done literally since the Sgt. Pepper sessions. And yeah, I mean that, folks. There is no hyperbole there. At, at the precipice of the 80s here, everyone, Paul's musical musings would predict not only the next decade, but the one after that, and the one after that as well. Yeah, buckle up, folks, because we've got some big songs today. Oh, yes. Though, just before we begin, just as with the last few episodes, I am fortunate enough to have stumbled across a rather extensive list of songs that we supposedly know to exist in one form or another, yet have not leaked at all. So we have no audio for these, just the titles. Uh, It is a sizable number. They are supposedly valid. I don't know. They could all be bullshit. I don't know if they're demos or full songs or... Even in the case of, like, Call of Nature, they might just be early or other versions of other songs on this list as well. So, with all of that, some of the other kind of lost McCartney songs from this period are Call of Nature, which we'll call back to later, Turkey and Peacock, which is said to possibly be an early version of Peacocks, though I doubt that because the sample used for that song wouldn't be created for another decade. Then we have In My Darkest Hour, which literally could be his Steve Miller collab or like a re-recording of Let It Be or something. Then we have Ecology of the World, Rock and Roll Rodeo, Good Morning Song, which is an unrecorded Puggins Hall rehearsal track. And finally, instead of Good Morning Song, we now have a more specific one with Good Morning Policeman, which apparently is a song that Paul wrote whilst in the Japanese prison in January of 1980. I've never heard any recording of this one either, but apparently it exists, as do all of the other ones I just mentioned. But yeah, with that, everyone, it's time to get to the songs that we do know exist and we do have access to. And thankfully, uh, Momax Hidden Tracks, uh, the uh, Paul McCartney bootleg CD collection, uh, has graciously allowed me to do this episode once again. Big shout out to that bootleg series. Though this first song we're going to talk about is not a bootleg, actually. We're going to start off rather strong with not only one of my favourite songs ever, but it's one of Paul's favourite songs, one of his favourite songs to talk about, and apparently the favourite song of everyone who Paul talks to as well. I hope your machines are indeed clean, folks, because this is... is Check! My machine... Oh, oh, oh. 
does it feel good to be back? Because I finally get to talk about one of my all-time top-tier, best-of-the-best, sir, Paul McCartney songs ever. And whilst I do like to at least attempt to be a little bit objective from time to time, in the case of this track, I can't put any of that on. And instead, I'm just going to say that this is an objective fact that this is in Paul's solo top 20. And if you don't agree, then I'll gladly fight you over it. Pistols at dawn, swords, fists, that big two-handed blade they use in Star Trek, you know, duh, 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 you name it. This track and its honour are never to be besmirched. And I'm going to take my sweet ass time laboriously detailing just why. Now, I've definitely mentioned this before, but one of the best things about Check My Machine, fundamentally, is that to a lay person, it does not sound like Paul McCartney at all. Making it one of mine, and I'm sure the same for you out there, a go-to gorilla Paul McCartney track. In the sense that uh, that's a gorilla, as in an, a regular fighter, not a large ape. But yeah, you know, whenever I want to sneak on a McCartney song without anyone catching on or groaning, or maybe I want to kind of subconsciously get them ready for a bit more Paul, then I'm going to pop this badass motherfucker on because no one's going to recognise it as Paul and they're just going to enjoy it instead. And it does tend to hit more than it misses. And there is this immeasurable satisfaction that one feels when you've made someone who either is ambivalent or even doesn't like Paul McCartney and you've got them to like that song against their will. Like, oh, chef's kiss. And whilst a different song that we're going to talk about, perhaps even the next one, definitely achieved a lot of the kind of aural and sound-based qualities that the second Fireman album, Rushes, would go on to work with, but... Check My Machine actually does go ahead and achieve the actual goals of the Feynman project 13 years before they were ever conceived because it does go to prove that people can just like Paul McCartney and his music without it necessarily sounding like him or them knowing that it sounds like him. You know, I'm not entirely sure what this does sound like. I'm not sure too many things do sound like Check My Machine, but... Paul McCartney, especially his public image at that time, that is not what I would associate this with at all, even his image now, and it's still so effective. When speaking about how different this is from his usual style, though, McCartney got uncharacteristically defensive of his craft and said the following. I definitely have different sides to my character, so I can love Nat King Cole singing a ballad, and I can want to do that kind of thing myself. And then the next day, I can wake up and want to do Check My Machine. I'm not a one-pocket guy. I have lots of interests. And that does get you in trouble. People say, how dare you step outside your box? Well, I'm not really sorry about it, but I'm actually doing what I want to do with my life. I do sometimes think that I could just shut up and rest on my lulls and say, you know what, guys? I'll operate out of the pocket that you put me in. But no way. No way I'm going to do that. I just get bored stiff the first minute. Folks, there is no doubt in my mind that Check My Machine is one of the true paragons of both McCartney's eclecticism and eccentrism that makes up his style. You know, this is as good a silly synth song as Maybe I'm Amazed is a good ballad or Silly Love Songs is a disco tune or Letting Go is a rocker or Sundays is a finger picker. 
is there some McCartney music in this style that is bad and isn't as supposedly groundbreaking as this? Of course there is. We're going to get to some of it. But regardless of whether you appreciate this particular style of McCartney's, you know, wide canvas, well, it doesn't mean it's still not legitimately up there with some of the best work he's ever done. Yes, it doesn't fit Wacky Macca Thumbs Aloft or even Mullet Rocker Paul During Wings, you know. And if you don't think so, if you don't think that this is as legitimate as something like Band on the Run or Another Day or Goodnight Tonight, then you're just missing out on some killer music. Essentially, what I'm saying is, is that the only way out of someone saying they don't like this song is to weasel out and say that you just don't like the style of style. Anyway, on to a bit of background now. This song was the B-side to Waterfalls, the second single from the McCartney 2 Sessions, and it was released on the 14th of June 1980 here in the UK and on the 22nd of July in the USA. As always, I still don't get how A-sides and B-sides could be on the charts independently, but I don't believe Check My Machine ever did. Uh, Waterfalls like reached number 7 here in the UK and like a number 106 in America, so I don't believe an esoteric song like Check My Machine ever would have made it onto the charts in any way, shape or form. But that's not important, that's not interesting. What is interesting is the established McCartney law. Or should I say, one of the biggest factoids in the McCartney canon. And factoid does mean incorrect fact, just in case you didn't know. As supposedly, this was literally the very first thing that McCartney recorded during his time up at the Spinner of Roundtown Studio up in Scotland during his retreat, you know, aka he's literally checking his machine, his machines, to see if they're working. And this is the song, the improvisation that was born out of such a clerical duty. You know, you read this statement everywhere, it's on liner notes, it's in books, it's on forums, people say it on podcasts, and yet it does directly contrast with this following line that Paul says about the track Front Parlour. He says, that was the first thing I did on the album. So yeah, that is pretty definitive. But what we do know is that this was still recorded right at the start of the sessions, maybe even literally the second song, and you can hear that in the explorative, virginal, unbound originality on the record. You know, a lot of the more solemn, more thoughtful songs, you know, the uh, acoustic ones from the sessions were all the ones recorded towards the end. So this is McCartney literally just experimenting for the sake of it and thank god he clicked record when he did now one of my favorite things about said unbound originality is that whilst it does like go on to inspire the digital and synthetic music of the future you know behind the scenes though all these recordings were still like rather rudimentary and simple in their production remember everyone paul is making this in an old house in scotland somewhere We've all seen the McCartney 2 photos of him, like, recording drum sounds by putting a, a drum in the toilet in his bathroom. And so, you know, this this album, these sessions could not be more analogue and physical. And that's just so cool for such an album that doesn't sound like that at all. And what this means, whether Paul intended it to be this way or not, is that this song and the rest of McCartney 2 benefits from a deceptively perhaps subconsciously 
handmade and homegrown feel, very much like McCartney 1, that avoids a lot of the cliche, cold, emotionless distance that a lot of early synth music ended up indulging in. This gives McCartney 2, especially Check My Machine that we're talking about now, its charm and its warmth, and it is just infectious. Still, he must have had some tricks to help speed up the process, right? You know, you'd think Paul just sung Check My Machine once and then looped it around, like, you know, with his MacBook while he drank uh, a mocha latte, right? Well, no. This is still 1979 and 1980, and the limitations were still vast, and as he details here, he had to do all by mouth rather than hand. He said, There's no sample. It's me singing live. That's the crazy thing with that album. It wasn't done like albums today. Like Secret Friend. It's about eight minutes long, and I would just stand there with the tambourine and maracas for eight minutes. Nowadays, you'd just go chicka 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 and then loop it. So, check my machine, it's just me, and the drumming is real, and the singing is real. Old school, right? Ha! Well, there was no other school at the time. I suppose we were inventing the new school. It's so funny to think that a song like Check My Machine is as complicated and as complex as it is, but when you think about it, Paul puts in as much effort into any of his works, so if he's going to do something as outlandish and silly as this, then is going to be the most daring, experimental, funky bit of exploration ever. Which actually lends the song a credence and legitimacy that all future imitators would lack. Regular listeners of the show will also know that I have an extreme soft spot for any McCartney production that starts off simple and ends up as a cacophonic borderline mess by the end crescendo. And that is what we get with Check My Machine. The song, as reflected in Paul's vocal, starts off very chill and stonery. But before long, Paul starts laying on more and more instrumental tracks, more synths, more sound effects, crashes, bangs, wallops, voices. And before you know it, the whole thing becomes this really heavy, dark, psychotic jam. Of course, Paul is a master in the studio. And again, it's so funny to think that all of his, you know, very serious, very groundbreaking, earth-changing songs and all the lessons he's learned from them have all been put into making something like Check My Machine as brilliant as it is. <laughs> you know, it's very Paul. However, before we get too far, we should uh, point out that it's not like there were no samples in this song at all. At the beginning of the track, you have the iconic use of the Looney Tunes cartoons to kick off the madness to signal to the audience that this is McCartney having some fun and not to be taken too seriously. The first two voices say, Hi, George. Morning, Terry. Followed by, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. These samples were taken from a 1957 Sylvester and Tweety animated short titled Tweet Zoo with the voices done by the iconic Mel Blanc. Now, maybe I'm conflating the post-Beatles depression isolation McCartney with the McCartney 2 like, retreat. But for me, it is no coincidence that Paul might be watching a lot of TV at this point in his life, in a kind of depression period, and incorporating it into his music. We know that Lennon watched a lot of TV in his depression as well. We also also know that Paul is always aware of criticism against him. And so the use of the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, automatically kind of conjures up that, Roy jab at my critics, like something like Silly Love Songs, 
And, you know, maybe it makes me wonder whether the poor reviews of Back to the Egg are being referenced here. Or maybe he'd been called names by the Japanese authorities during his arrest. Who knows? But it, its use as a particular phrase was far too evocative to me to be simply ignored. In addition, not only does this cartoon sample let the audience know that this isn't exactly going to be Eleanor Rigby they're listening to, it also effectively lays the groundwork for the absolutely insane vocals that McCartney is about to go into. I will be talking about Paul's improv skills later on another song, but that's what we also get here. We get between six and nine minutes of Paul riffing off one idea. So to make it interesting for himself, he starts to play with not only how silly he can get his voice, but how he can change it and warp it. You know, he's not just doing different voices. He's also manipulating them with his uh, various speed and uh, echo and reverb, that kind of thing. And it results in this room of alternate different dimension McCartney's all singing together. It's a very trippy experience. And the result is literally McCartney as a cartoon. Clearly, Paul heard this as he was doing it at the time and knew it would probably be a bit jarring. So again, he undercut all of this with some literal established cartoon madness right at the start. It all works very well. And what words is Paul singing in this very silly voice? Well, that's a good question. And normally I do like to get all up my own arse and do some lyrical analysis, but that cannot be done with Check My Machine, as the only words that can be clearly made out are, in fact, Check My Machine. This immediately veers the song towards the tradition of Macca minimal lyric tracks, and like all those other songs, it goes towards turning the whole tune into a very hypnotic, earworm, mantra-like experience, leaving little hope for this song not to be stuck in your head by the end of the day. Like, you will actually feel like you've been singing Check My Machine for a couple of minutes, but actually nine minutes have just flown by, and you didn't even realise how much fun you were having. And I also defy anyone to try and listen to this song and not end up singing Check My Machine by its end. But just because those are the only intelligible words in the track, it doesn't mean that they are the only ones. Paul doesn't shut up throughout the entire song, and you can tell he's constantly riffing about something to do with his machine, like that one bit where you can definitely pick up him talking about something about a guarantee written on the back of it. But yeah, as Paul details here, he was hearkening back to yet another older musical style. He says, There's a great old tradition of scatting, and I always like to hear it on Fat Waller or Louis Armstrong records. The greatest scatter of all was Ella Fitzgerald. The way scatters were able to find rhythms in nonsense words was so inspiring, you could tell they were having fun. In this song, I knew I'd got a lot of echo on my voice, and I knew too that it wasn't going to matter much what any of the words were. I just made it up. The one idea comes across loud and clear, and that's check my machine, and that's all I wanted to get across. There were a couple of kinds of machines I was thinking of. The computer was one. They said recording would be sped up massively with computers, but the Beatles would have done two songs by the time you would have got the computer up and running. So yeah, whilst this scatting and the overall production of the vocals does obscure what the hell Paul was ranting on about in his likely weed-induced stupor, thankfully it still does work in the song's favour, 
lending it a sort of cryptic, mysterious edge where you're simultaneously trying to pay closer attention to work it all out, whilst also trying to get lost in the groove, making for a very fun experience indeed. And how ironic that one of my favourite Paul McCartney songs, you know, Paul, a man, a guy who's always criticised for his lyrics, is a song where the lyrics don't matter. Also, folks, lyrically, I have to bring this up, and I know some of you are already going to be rolling your eyes in anticipation of this take, but as we all know, Paul has also referred to wanking and masturbation as a fireman cleaning his machine, and so it feels appropriate for me to muse that there may be something else going on here. I mean, you know, folks, it's always important for men and women alike to check for lumps and bumps in certain areas, and maybe check my machine is just Paul's way of saying, you know, gentlemen out there, make sure you're doing your monthly testicle checks. Who knows? Of course, I do need to talk about the actual music itself at some point, and the shorthand for this song is that, like the majority of the McCartney 2 sessions, the instrumentation does seem to be a little simpler than usual, which makes sense, you know, considering the, the informal recording setup. But once you look at the album through a kind of ambient vibe kind of lens, then it becomes clear that these sessions are instead uh, a direct contrast to kind of McCartney's overindulgence in the studio and are instead, you know, a totem to his minimalism. However, that doesn't mean that there are a couple of points of instrumentalism worth pointing out. First of all, the melody. I mean, production wizardry aside, the actual tune to this song is simply sublime, isn't it? And it's one of those riffs where you're like, how has this not already been done before it really does feel classic and i imagine some people out there feel like it has been wasted on a track like this but yeah it's instantly infectious it's instantly catchy and it works really well for this kind of track but you've also got the bass line and yet we have another post beatles bass line that's just been completely overlooked by the world it's another one of paul's catchiest and playful bass lines in his career no one talks about it another travesty and you also get what I can only assume is the very first instance of the banjo working its way onto a Paul McCartney record. It really is an anomaly because it never appears again. I don't know, maybe he just didn't vibe with the instrument. And I think there is some credence to that because he really doesn't play it like a banjo on the track. More like just another string, generic string instrument, you know. Moving on, and like several of the tracks from the McCartney 2 sessions, the first versions we heard, and many of the first versions that were bootlegged, were not actually the final word on those songs. And over the years, finally culminating in the archive sets being released, the best news ever was revealed. Basically, most of, if not all of the synthy electronica stuff from those sessions have longer, uncut versions out there somewhere. And Check My Machine is the first of those that we're going to be talking about here today. Here today. The mix that we get for the B-side of Temporary Secretary, the original and the 7-inch new one for the box set, both clock in at around 5 minutes, 52, 53 seconds. And the extended version comes in at just under 9 minutes. And folks, what we're going to see here is that, in some instances, Paul's unending musical self-indulgent sometimes actually creates some of the best music ever in existence. A lot of the time it can stray into the wanky side of things, but here Paul is on fire with every decision he makes and his 
creativity knows no bounds. I mean, I could go into my personal really nerdy specifics of what I like so much about the extra three minutes, such as all the unique bonus uh, live takes and intonations of Check My Machine that Paul sings and all the silly things we hear from his mouth and all the new indecipherable lyrics and all these little tiny moments on a massive tableau of a song. But if I was to put it in order for you like that, actually go through every single one, it wouldn't be a very interesting episode. Oh, um, actually, one thing I do want to quickly highlight from the longer version is that you get a little kind of denouement at the end, like a lovely little moment of respite to allow you to come down from the insanity that you just heard. It's a nice little effective uh, part of the song, but you get why it would be cut for a single version. But yeah, folks, that's everything I have to say about Check My Machine. Clearly, I like the song a lot, (laughs) as you can tell. It's a very important song to me in terms of my McCartney fandom. But it's not just important to me. It's also very important to Paul himself in terms of his own self-worth as an artist. And it's clear that people's opinion on this song is something that has truly stuck with him. You know, this song is him really going outside of his comfort zone and his wheelhouse, and I imagine he put a lot into it, and it probably means a lot to him to have this particular musical venture exonerated by his peers, you know, to be validated in that way. This is a quote from Loud and Quiet magazine from Paul. He says, I was in LA when I was doing Egypt Station with Greg Kirsten, the producer, and we were wandering around this little studio while they were all setting up, and Will I Am was there with one of his mates, and he said... Paul, I was just listening to Check My Machine. And the other guy was like, what? I've never heard of it. He got it up on his phone and they were like, yeah, vindication. They just come out of the woodwork, those things. I was just goofing around. Right, and after what might literally be 20 minutes on a single B-side, we now come to another B-side, the other track from these sessions that was actually released in some sort of official way. To all of my public enemies, this is Secret Friend. Straight up, everyone, this is another banger. No doubt about it. I mean, yeah, I was always going to love the B-side to Temporary Secretary, wasn't I? We all know that. But I've been smitten for this one since the earliest days of my McCartney fandom. It's one of those songs that I really haven't let up from listening to on repeat since I heard it. And my joy was truly an immeasurable one when I finally got it on vinyl. Like, I was more excited to get Secret Friend on vinyl than I was Temporary Secretary. I mean, out of all of Paul's works that we're talking about here today, 
This is genuinely the most avant-garde and legitimately out there he's ever been. Uh, at least until this point. I mean, this illustrious tableau of music that he presents us with would already be one of the most impressively intricate and delicate things in his entire career, but on top of that, he also did it in a barn in the middle of Scotland, making the achievement even more fantastical. Anyway, like a lot of men my age, I am someone who is obsessed with the length of my B-sides. Yes, I can still remember being spellbinded by how long this was compared to the A-side. Like, in my mind, you kind of had to have a kind of even length between tracks. Like, you had a three-minute A-side, a two-and-a-half, three-minute B-side, something like that. But no. <laughs> yeah, even back then, I knew that overly long, self-indulgent Paul was my jam. And Secret Friend does not disappoint on any front. Actually, with it clocking in at 10 minutes and 36 seconds, it may just be the poster child for the entire concept of McCartney self-indulgence, as it's literally the longest track in his entire solo canon, not counting medleys. The only other track that comes close is Rinse the Raindrops from Driving Rain, but whereas that song is very heavy and can be a bit of a slog towards the end, Secret Friend hardly feels its length, and you can just enjoy its relaxed, mystical atmosphere. Like the other full-length tracks that we're going to talk about today, I am 100% in favour of these longer tracks in this period. Though, with Secret Friend, we actually got the longest complete version first, like that was the commercially available one. Like, unlike Front Parlour and Frozen Japanese that were truncated for commercial release, Paul was unable to trim Secret Friend in the same way. When speaking about the song's length, he said, It's very dismissible, a ten minute track called Secret Friend. Leave it out, it's not Hey Jude, so shut up. Well, it isn't Hey Jude, but I knew what I was doing. I wasn't trying to write Hey Jude. It's like Picasso, dare I compare myself? Ha! No, you daren't. But whenever he got a groove going, his blue period or his cubist period, he kicked it over. He never did it anymore. And people would go, I loved your blue period. Yeah, well, I'm fed up with that. I'm a cubist now. And that's a bit how I feel. It's difficult to admit, but some of those songs, I've written them purposefully, avoiding writing hits, which is very strange. People hear that and go, why did you do that? It's because I think of myself a bit more as an artist. It's a strange period I went through. I wanted to spew this idea on the tape. Clearly, there is definitely some review buried at the back of a magazine or newspaper somewhere where some critic complained about the length of this song and compared it negatively to Hey Jude, aka The Beatles' Longest Song. But Paul needn't worry about that because anyone who complains about the length of a Macca song at this point is probably not a fan. And besides that, it's not like he was without justification for letting this song run at this length. You know, uh, let's talk about him being commercial. Um, maybe he, he was trying to make something that could fill, you know, these 12-inch maxi singles, these these 12-inch large singles with all this extra space. He's been dabbling, you know, with like a longer cut of Goodnight Tonight. So maybe he just wanted to fill something up, like he's Mike Oldfield or something. And, you know, he's giving the best value for money with a long song like this. And... Also, there are those legitimate artistic reasons as well. I totally you know, enjoy how long this song is. I don't know why you wouldn't enjoy it. You know, you don't want it to end. 
it doesn't outstay its welcome. So who's complaining? Anyway, speaking of the length, as we mentioned in Check My Machine, and no, I'm not going to mention it with every song on this episode. But yeah, the whole album process was very tactile and more importantly, live. The reason I bring this up again is because it's clearly the thing that has stuck the most in Macca's mind from this period. So if McCartney didn't lay it on extra thick enough for you before, here's another quote where he details the amount of extra work he gave himself during the recording of these long-ass songs at his home setup in 1979. He details, This was the album where I felt like a nutty professor in his laboratory. Some of the tracks, like Secret Friend, go on for 10 minutes. I just got into it. Now that's all very well when you're doing your first take, but you've got to put the cowbell on it. And I would sit there in real time and put a cowbell on for 10 minutes, occasionally glancing at my watch. I've got five more to go. Dinka 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 dink. Your thoughts just come swimming in. Are you kidding me? Are you going to stand here and do this? Why don't you just do the cowbell on that bit? No, I'll mix it out later. Which, of course, you never do, right? Now we'll do the maracas. Ch-ch-ch. Looking at my watch again. <laughs> what a uh, picture Paul paints there of his recording process. You know, he's made his bed and he has to lie in it, I guess. And whilst I do love this kind of anecdote from our Paul, it's always nice to have a specific song with a specific anecdote. It is a bit of a shame that this is the takeaway memory for him, because I'd much rather prefer some insights on the song itself, but maybe there's nothing as interesting as that anecdote. And that's the same with every Paul McCartney song in existence that he speaks about, I guess. Anyway, moving on. And, of course, recently we covered the Fireman's 1998 album Rushes, and it's hard for me to listen to something like Secret Friend and not perceive it as a sort of seedling for that album. Like, this is a true example of ambient music before ambient music was even a thing. Like, it's just a wonderful song to get lost in, and it does promote the ambient ideology of creating calm, spacious environments in which to think. I always pop this track on when I'm writing, and I always use it during the housekeeping segments of the podcast as well, as it does create that sense of calm that I am after. Though it is not innovative in a vacuum, you know, this is the B-side to Temporary Secretary, and I do love... (laughs) This is legitimately one of the most Paul McCartney moves ever. You know, he has one of the most strangest, daring, ahead-of-its-time A-sides possible, but then on top of that, he has a B-side on the disc that is even stranger, even more daring, and even more ahead of its time. Although, what really seals the deal in making it truly stereotypically McCartney-esque is that no one ever heard it. However, had they heard it, they would have come across some of the subtlest McCartney instrumentation of the period. The real breadth of synth sounds he utilises on this track really is impressive and there is seemingly no plug-in, mode, switch or setting on all of his machines that he has checked at the McCartney farmstead that don't make it onto this record. And in addition to all of these obviously surreal and unfamiliar sounds, something else that really comes across in this song is Paul's mastery of the synthetic orchestra and his ability to make it sound very real and familiar and warm. Like, you know, we, we know he can use a, a real-life in-person orchestra to great effect, and we've even heard him use similar kind of things, uh, albeit a little bit funkier, 
on stuff like Arrow Through Me with synths. The last album, but here, despite the song being very modern, uh, he's actually using the synth strings with such a reserved restraint that they genuinely do sound like real strings on the record. Like, I mean, obviously, if you really you know, sit down and, and listen to it, you can tell, but, you know, Paul's really good at just getting the most out of, out of these synth instruments, and somehow, despite preceding the 80s synth revolution, Paul actually sounds, you know, warmer and richer and more full of sound and less robotic than that whole decade ever will. Like, Paul is genuinely... 10 years ahead of his time here it's it's absolutely fantastic i also want to give a huge shout out to that clearly synthy kazoo sound there's one little breakdown where it's just that at the, at the percussion and it's oh mwah, love it uh, we also have a second b-side in a row now where we have a bass line that's just plain old fab the bass line for this one is low-key one of my favorites of pause and like again check my machine it is both simple and hypnotic like, Paul really does have this whole formula down before the formula is even a genre. You know, like all of the dance music and electronic music in the future, Paul is doing these no-nonsense, no-frills bass parts that are the perfect bedrock for crazy techno stuff. He's got the consistent uh, droning drum part and the mantra-like repetitive lyrics. It's so ahead of its time. I really cannot stress that enough. Also... We've got to give a quick shout out to the easiest instrument to play ever, which is the the, the claves or the claves. And I've, I've got to say the uh, clav slash clave like drum machine that you get in this song is divine. It's just one of those little elements that is fun to focus on while you're listening to the song as a whole. And there's just a certain je ne sais quoi about it, whereby if it was taken away, the song would just cease to work in the same way. Lyrically, the song has always been an enigma for me, though, as it's one of those songs where I totally understand the emotion and the intent of the song that Paul's trying to convey, whilst also having no fucking clue about what's actually being sung. And, if anything, that's a testament to strong writing and a strong vocal performance from Paul. Still, even if you try and pay attention to this song, you'll only get a word or two here and there. And for the longest time, I'd felt like the lyrics for this one were just intentionally warped and altered to the point of indecipherability, because it would just allow you, like many Paul songs, to just project whatever emotional baggage you want onto it. Also, you know, with this being an ambient song, there's never arguably been a better time for Paul to employ such a technique. However, as it turns out, unbeknownst to me, there are actually lyrics for this song, supposedly. There was a full set that I found on both legitimate and kind of auto-generated AI sites for this song. And, I mean, I've been checking them out prior to this episode. And whilst I do kind of want this to be real, because it would give me a certain sense of closure, that I felt like when I heard the extended uh, sitar solo on Love You Too for the Revolver 50th Anniversary box... You, you know, it, some of it does seem quite legit. We've got a lot of McCartney writing staples here. We've got the sea, day and night, finding one's way. And you even get that fantastically evocative image of Knight turning up her velvet collar. You know, personifying Knight as a woman in velvet is quite sensual for Paul. I like where he's leaning there slightly. And, you know, with the kind of mystical... 
uh, obscure way you hear the lyrics. You know, it does work in that sense. And oh, also, I I don't deny that the I need ya times four lyrics that is written down there is incorrectly written. Uh, that's that's one of my favourite parts of the song. The way Paul sings I need ya in this song is absolutely spellbinding. Oh my gosh. However, in response to this song supposedly having lyrics, I must point out that I'm quite sceptical. I always thought that this one was just one of the ones that was lost to the annals of, you know, Paul obscuring his own voice behind production. You, you know, I never thought that we were going to get the original tracks for this song and, you know, remove all the other instruments and then write it all down properly. But that is apparently what's happened. Though, I must draw your attention to this quote from Paul himself. Granted, this is also from when he was talking about Check My Machine, but the simple sentiment still applies as far as I'm concerned, and it might actually be more relevant here. He says, There was a period when I was working in the studio by myself, my mad professor period, around the late 70s. I would make a record, and when the time came to release it, someone at my office would realise that they needed the lyrics, so they tried to figure out what I'd said. I probably didn't check what they came up with. I think it's more likely that we all listened to the recording and thought, I'm bound to say something sensible by the end of the line. So there's your smoking gun, everyone. I think the majority of the lyrics that are out there for McCartney 2 bonus tracks might fall under this remit. Maybe even some of the ones on the album itself. Who knows? Still, that doesn't mean that these lyrics are completely devoid of content for me to needlessly analyse. And I think the majority of you probably know where I might go with this one. Yes, as a person who is always the first to decry anyone else whenever they assume that a song by Paul or John is about John or Paul and vice versa. But, come on everyone. I mean, you don't have to be an expert in Freudian psychology to put two and two together for this one and realise that maybe this is Paul talking about his secret friendship with John. I mean, the very title of the song, you know, the hook, the concept of secret friend is one that seems to be an accurate way to describe the more than likely actual relationship between John and Paul throughout the 70s. You know, whether it's due to a supposed feud of a band breakup or because John isolated himself in New York or because Paul was too busy or visas or whatever. People have always had this idea of John and Paul straight up just not being friends throughout this period. And yet, you know, you can go and check this out in much more detail on other podcasts like Another Kind of Mind or One Sweet Dream. But we know by now that that is straight up bullshit and... I think Secret Friend is a little reference to that. John is the secret friend. What do you think? Let me know at popcornipod at gmail.com. That'd be an interesting one. Have I gone too far? But yeah, folks, that's all of the public information I have about Secret Friend. It is an absolute classic in the McCartney canon. Uh, I'm probably going to be listening to it in a minute whilst I'm recording the rest of this episode because it does just put me in the perfect state of calm. In fact, I can already feel myself getting chilled out as we speak. Maybe if I just rest my eyes, just, just for a moment. And now, folks, it's time for us to move on to a song whose title is not a surprise when you consider that McCartney's wife is Linda. This is All You Horse Riders. 
We've just heard McCartney talk about his mad professor period. It's a very common way to talk about him in this time. But this is the song where he truly goes a little bit too far off the deep end. I think men in white coats and big syringes are going to be taking him away shortly. Of course, as we know, artistic experimentation means that you sometimes get to create for its own sake, just to get something out of your system and or or just to see how far you can push a concept, or just to see if you can amuse yourself and make yourself laugh. And I think that's what we get all rolled into one with this one. This one, this one. There are always a couple of these kind of, what I like to call exorcism songs uh, during any McCartney session, so we can focus on the next hit, and that's what you get with all you horse riders. Of course, most of the time those experiments Macca will rightfully abandon. However, in the case of All Your Horse Riders, we have a song that, yeah, okay, obviously is not album worthy, but to say that Paul was not right to include it officially as some sort of B-side or release it in some sort of fashion or the fact that he didn't return to it in any way doesn't quite sit right with me. All You Horse Riders is a goofy, fun McCartney song. Just have fun with it, meet it halfway at its own level, and you are going to enjoy it. And there are traces, hints, slivers of some of the good stuff with All Your Horse Riders, and I do wish that he kind of returned to it, especially considering the work he put into Blue Sway. But more on that song in just a short while. Lyrically, All Your Horse Riders is easily one of the most interesting of the McCartney 2 cold cuts because. Unlike the majority of these sessions, uh, where the unreleased material is based on simple, repetitive mantra-like lyrics, All You Horse Riders instead sees Paul going into full SNL improv troupe mode as he hilariously riffs and improvises his way throughout the entire runtime of this song. And, you know, we, we, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about Paul's spontaneity and experimentation and trying new things that have never been done before, but... This song, listening to it, literally feels like we are hearing Paul come up with ideas live on the spot, and that is so exciting. It's it's improvisational to its core, and it wasn't until I listened to it again for this podcast that that really clicked for me, but it's just so much fun to hear Paul riff this one out throughout the entire three-minute run of this song. Like, he really does sustain it, for its entire length, and good for him. I don't know if he knew how long he was going to be having to 
riff this out for? Like, did he do the instrumental first and then these vocals came after? I don't know, but either way, it works. The other dead giveaway that it is truly a single vocal take, by the way, is the fact that aside from maybe On The Way, this is the only track with uh, vocals from the McCartney 2 sessions that have no vocal overdubs whatsoever. It's live and one take. Though the most captivating part of this song is Paul's characterization of this horse-riding leader or barker. It's a ludicrous character. And, you know, he's doing even crazier scatting than we saw on Check My Machine. And yet somehow he still manages to kind of keep things on track, on trail, if you will. And he steers the party and actually takes us on a literal horse ride. You know, and he riffs out the whole thing marvellously with a, a signature McCartney-esque eye for detail. And whether or not a real horse ride sounds anything like this track, his experiences with horses and with Linda have afforded him enough experience to give this song enough vernacular to make it seem real. In fact, the whole thing's kind of very Hey Grand Dude, in the sense that it's a McCartney adventure that's still pleasant and innocuous, with the only trial really being like a river for the horse riders to jump over. But it's all just the little bits like Paul being like, come on now, steady up, along with his bare bones plot points in its own little way is a really well told story. I also have no idea where this character comes from, that he's being like this particular voice. And, you know, there isn't uh, the embarrassment of riches in terms of source material that we have for Check My Machine. But as I alluded to earlier, this song has to be something to do with Linda and horses specifically. And I guarantee you that the character he's adopting here is some sort of little private joke between the two of them that we'll never be privy to. Although, there are some liner notes for a two-disc version of McCartney 2. It's a bootleg called The Lost McCartney Album. And there it implies that this song was actually written in the mid-1970s for an unreleased McCartney homemade film called The Backyard. Something I'm definitely going to be double-checking on. Because the only tape or like f- piece of footage that I know called The Backyard was actually for the, the James Paul McCartney TV special. And that's the little backyard little concert that McCartney gives. I don't know. But yeah, let's not get too bogged down in that one. Now, in terms of musicality and instrumentation, I was a bit shocked when I came back to this song. And it made me wonder whether I actually did bother to listen to it properly the first time. Because... When I came back here, I actually felt like the instrumentation here wasn't as annoying as I remembered it was, and that it's actually subversively quite melodic and tuneful underneath that kind of abrasive techno frill, aka like a temporary secretary. Also, you know me by now, folks, I am a sucker for a basic one instrument at a time layering technique, and Maka does that here. Nails it! Like, the song starts off catchy enough, but oh my god though, when that second deep, murky, bassy counter melody comes in on top of the original one, the song suddenly and unexpectedly shifts into something way cooler and badass than I ever expected and probably more than it ever deserved to be. Then you get another layer of synths and then another, and what began as quite a grating if goofy track actually metamorphoses quite seamlessly into a rather intense, surprisingly intricate and ambitious electronic soundscape. Of course, you also get uh, all of this modern instrumentation contrasting nicely against the idea of a horseback ride, which is like 
New World versus Old World, which I liked as well. Of course, you also have that classic one-to-one McCartney real-life drum beat, keeping everything nicely in check in the background. But it's the gorgeously obnoxious little drum machine percussion that I want to focus on just for a second. It's that rhythmic yet kind of annoying tapping that is, again, very temporary secretary-esque. But whereas that song was kind of annoying by proxy, like it's just the way that that song sounds, I feel like here it's very intentional. And I don't mean he's trying to be intentionally annoying or anything. What I mean is that Paul was probably just experimenting with these drum sounds and then he realised that one of them perfectly mimics the clippity-clop of real-life horse hooves. And I guarantee you that that, more than anything else, is what informed the song. Like, at the start of the song, it's very slow, with a kind of one-two, one-two. But then they get their reins, and Paul, like, starts to tell them to get faster and to trot and gallop. And the drum machine perfectly reflects it directly, which actually makes the song far more immersive than one would expect. Though, I must confess that this is the part of the show where I admit that I do have a bit of a history with horses myself. When I was a young man, I did a bit of horse riding at the same place where my mom and sister uh, did a bit of horse riding as well. They now don't go to that stables. They had a bit of a bust up, so they go to another one now. But yeah, back when I was doing it, I used to be on this big, fat, lazy horse called Ben to like tack him up and put his saddle on, do all that crap and muck out his poo. And he's and he, but he'd never do anything for me. He was slow and horrible, and I, I was never impressive on it. And then one day I gave him the whack of the crop because my mom was staring death at me. And he kicked me into a wall. And uh, once I awoke with the little birds tweeting around my head, I decided that that's not what I was going to do anymore. Never rode a horse since. I'd like to, though, uh, in a kind of heart of the country-esque way. Uh, But maybe that's why I enjoy all you horse riders so much. It's just a nostalgic childhood song for me, who knows. But... Either way, I'd like to think that I've fought in its corner legitimately for at least a little bit. So folks, if the first time you've heard this song was just at the start here now, pause this episode, go and sit down with it. You won't be disappointed. But now that we've finished All You Horse Riders, the one that we kind of obligatorily have to do, we can move on to the one that everyone is most excited for me to talk about here. Surf's up, dude. This is Blue Sway. Thank you. 
just heard there, everyone, was the original Blue Sway, the version that was recorded in 1979. And if there are any of you out there who feel like they are living through their own personal Mandela effect, do not worry, as this is not the version that is the most official or widely promoted version of the song. Yes, there are multiple versions of Blue Sway, uh, another that I will get to later, and that is likely the one that you're most familiar with. So, what gives? Well, this version is technically just a demo. It's so unofficial that it isn't even available as its own song in the McCartney 2 archive box set, with it instead being as part of a two-song medley with all you horse riders. Again, not a real medley, they're just kind of smushed together, but you get the point. This demo version of the song is simpler and less focused, and again, is another one of those McCartney 2 songs that fall into the category of great little idea that needs a little extra something to finish it off. Of course, the core hallmarks of the track are unmistakably present here in the first version. I mean, the tones are incredibly similar. The mood, the murky atmosphere, the bass melody, the staccato guitar work, that's all there. And I do enjoy the demo version of the song, and I've ended up listening to it a lot in the preparation for this episode. In fact, I'm even listening to it now. But thankfully Paul was on form, and he could clearly hear that the music was missing something. And it could have been a gamble. Thankfully it wasn't. It was the right move for him not to include it on the final album. Fortunately though, as we saw recently with like Frank Sinatra's party, Paul never throws anything away. And with a track like this, it, it, it's, it's going to be part of Paul's uh, kind of wait and see, play the long game, it'll all pay off in the end kind of mode. As the basic Blue Sway demo is a perfect semi-blank canvas for Paul to build one of his best works upon. So yeah, the story goes that in September slash October of 1986, when Paul was off working on the actual Hot Hits and Cold Cuts album, yes, the very same unreleased album that this side series gets its namesake from, and the same album that started my obsession with bonus and unreleased material in the first place, yes, when he was working on that album, he decided that he wasn't just going to release the old songs as is, and instead he was going to get some hot new talent to come in and help him zhuzh some of them up. And that talent, as they describe here, was an American composer by the name of Richard Niles, and he recounts the events as thus. In 1986, I was asked to meet Paul McCartney to work on an album to be called Cold Cuts, unreleased cold tracks. He heard my work on Grace Jones's Slave to the Rhythm and wanted someone who, like George Martin, was an arranger producer. He asked me to go through 14 tracks and add or replace whatever was necessary to complete them for release. One of these tracks was Blue Sway, to which I added a large string section and the wonderful Dick Morrissey wailing away on tenor sax. He continues, I travelled down to his studio and as we went through every song, I told him what I thought each needed. Orchestration, new drums or guitar, synthesizer or backing vocals. McCartney was absolutely happy to leave the entire recording to me. When he had ideas, they were expressed clearly in non-technical language, but when he was working with people he trusted, he let them do their job. Any musicians or studios I required were made available to me. 
and he himself always was focused and ready to work. First things first, yes, you can bet your sweet fucking ass that the bonus hidden track at the end of this episode is going to be the album version of Grace Jones's Slave to the Rhythm. And second of all, what a fucking cool gig this guy has. I mean, imagine if Paul McCartney, one of, if not the greatest songwriter of all time, invites you round and says that you can do whatever you think is best for his songs. It's like the richest, coolest kid on the street asking you to play with all of his toys for him in any way you want. Like, how do you turn down something like that? But yeah, importantly, the thing is, is that he did not fumble the pass, and he was able to take full advantage of this opportunity. And as you're going to hear in a second, he has excellent instincts, and it is no wonder why Paul chose him. Let's have a listen to Blue Sway, but, as it is now known, Blue Sway with Richard Niles' orchestration. folks am i right i mean there that's a pretty perfect paul mccartney song folks you know whether it's alan klein or jan wenner it's always great to see paul vindicated to any degree but whenever he goes back to a song and gives it a little bit of that tlc it just gives me that warm gooey feeling and having heard this in the early 2010s i just assumed that this was a clear-cut mccartney classic but of course that is not the case and I imagine when this song was introduced to a wider audience in 2011, those who heard it thought so too. Because it just has that magic. That's the only way I can put it. Whether it's that certain descending guitar line at the end of Bluebird, or the horns in Deep Down, certain Macca songs scratch that cosmic itch, my pineal gland, and this song is the embodiment of that, really. Either way, it doesn't matter because the original Blue Sway has been now completely replaced and supplanted, to the point that I only knew of the Richard Niles version for the longest of time. I think part of that is because the 
Richard Niles' version is at the start of a disc and has its own music video, and the demo version is at the end of the archive collection as a part of a two-part medley. Hang on, did I just say music video? Yes, yes you did. Even Paul's unreleased tracks can sometimes get music videos, everyone. And, much to my excitement, the best part of this officially sanctioned project is the fact that it came about entirely from a fan project. This is taken directly from the YouTube video description of the music video. It reads, Paul McCartney recruited award-winning surfer filmmaker Jack McCoy to create a music video for his previously unreleased track Blue Sway. Written nearly 20 years ago, McCartney's never-before-released song Blue Sway is available for the first time on the bonus audio disc of the special edition of McCartney 2. The music video created by McCoy is also featured on the bonus DVD included in the set. Jack McCoy has been capturing the surfing vision in a truly unique way. Using high-powered underwater jet skis, the filmmaker found that he was able to travel behind a wave, creating underwater images that have never before been seen. Over the past couple of years, McCoy set out to capture footage for his surf film, A Deeper Shade of Blue. During the editing process, McCoy put one of his surfing sequences to a song of McCartney's The Fireman album. A mutual friend, Chris Thomas, saw the footage whilst visiting McCoy in Australia, and when he returned to the UK, he gave McCartney a copy of the sequence. Paul was pretty stoked with what I'd created. He immediately thought my images might be suitable to go with his unreleased song, Blue Sway, said McCoy. McCoy spent the next six weeks creating the music video, while also working full days on making A Deeper Shade of Blue. McCoy compiled and edited footage that he filmed off Tahiti's Tiahupu Reef to create what became the Blue Sway video. When I first saw Jack McCoy's underwater surfing footage put to the soundtrack of Blue Sway, I was blown away, says McCartney. So yeah, folks, you can indeed go onto YouTube right now and check out the surf-tastic music video for Blue Sway, despite the fact that it had no release outside of being a bonus track on the McCartney 2 archive collection. Which means, folks, if you can do something cool enough with Paul McCartney's music, not only will he condone it, but he will borrow the idea and use it for himself. I mean, could you imagine a more validating moment in one's life than when the Big Mac himself gives you his blessing? And he's done it twice with Blue Sway. Blue... Blue Sway is a song that has helped out two individual artists get Paul McCartney on their CV. I mean, this is a very selfless giving song, isn't it? Anyway, back to the music itself. And yeah, when compared to the demo, the Richard Niles orchestration version is superior by every conceivable measurement, which it's supposed to be. Like, I don't think there are going to be many original Blue Sway demo fans who I'm going to be upsetting here. The song has been completely reinvented and, as corny as this sounds, raised up a couple of levels to, to the point of being, as far as I'm concerned, a borderline McCartney classic. The whole song is just so lush and hourly pleasant. Like, I know all music is designed to be pleasurable to the ears, but this is literally meant to be physically pleasurable to the ears. Like, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up when you listen to this song, you know? Also, just as a little diversion, has anyone else also kind of heard this as a Bond theme? Like, I always heard it that way. I always heard this as a Bond song. I know Andrew Dixon pointed out that How Kind of You also sounds very Bond-esque, and this is the same kind of thing. It just has those particular chord sequences and 
production qualities to you know this is very bond-esque i think that's fair to say the orchestration is just straight up some of the best in mccartney's entire oeuvre it is george martin level work it is mccartney level work and it is mind-blowing how drastically different it is when compared to that original demo also rather like the let it be album i've said this before but if you hadn't told me that the orchestration wasn't Paul or George Martin, I also wouldn't have had no reason to assume otherwise. As far as I'm concerned, this additional orchestration by Richard Knowles may in fact be one of the most individually successful McCartney collaborations ever. Maybe it's because he was a gun for hire, and because there was less at stake with this being an unofficial Cold Cuts project, meant that there was more room to play around without the pressure of like a professional collaboration on a studio album. Specifically, Niles, with pinpoint precision, identified all of the things that the song needed, giving the kind of languid, meandering demo of Blue Sway a new sense of urgency, a sense of pacing, a richer soundscape, all the glorious melodrama you could shake a stick at, and, most importantly, a sense of timelessness. You know, there is so much from the McCartney 2 sessions that, whilst not being dated specifically, do sound of an era. But with this classical instrumentation mixed with the original blue sway, that fusion of old and new really does create this, this seamless, mercurial, timeless track. And, oh my god, those strings, those succulent, delicious strings are just one of the most beautiful things ever put to tape and like i think the bond part is that like these strings are just sexy these are, these are sexy string sections try saying that three times fast i know i struggled but like oh my god this song is just so sensual and niles also gives them lots of multiple different memorable moments throughout the songs like there's that really fast bit just before the sax or that descending dramatic plucking segment towards the end. Speaking of sax, the saxophone in this track perfectly fits into the McCartney canon of sax moments, aka Bluebird or Listen to What the Man Said and the fake sax synth on Atlantic Ocean. The sax here, though, might be the most dated aspect of the song, but it is just so shamelessly passionate and over-the-top and in-your-face that I can't help but love it. Of course, it was not just Richard Niles who added to this song after the initial McCartney 2 sessions. Nope. Paul had some of his own ideas with what to do with the song. Most notably, the addition of vocals. Yes, I really didn't mention it earlier in terms of the Blue Suede demo in that it's entirely an instrumental. But yeah, with the Richard Niles version, technically we go from an instrumental to a full-on song. And what a vocal it is. We'll talk about the exact or inexact lyrics in a moment, but Paul's voice on this song is just so goddamn enjoyable. It is unbelievably catchy, despite the fact that, yeah, you're really not too sure what he's saying. He displays a top-notch range, too, beginning with half-whispered mumbles at the start, followed by these very breathy, ethereal vocals, along with some more double-tracking and harmonies. And then we go into like what I call the soft, hardcore McCartney vocal, where he's kind of screaming, but it's also the gentlest thing you ever heard. The whole performance is incredibly surreal, and it literally comes across like Paul singing to you whilst you're dreaming, or in a coma, or 
in the next room and you're only getting bits of information. It's a really cool effect. And, of course, one cannot talk about the vocals without discussing the lyrics. And, of course, this is a McCartney 2 Sessions track, so the lyrics are minimalist to the core and intentionally obscure as all hell. In fact, they are so obscure that there are no official lyric sheet that McCartney or MPL has ever put out. However, some people on the net or some AI has done some rough guesses. But the point of the song is just Blue Sway. That's it. Again, Blue Sway is a mantra for this song, and it can mean whatever you want. As you know, It just has two perfectly evocative words that are so much more so when put together. Blue Sway, you know, a beat road. It's just one of those evocative couple of words. Actually, the whole lyric is all day Blue Sway, uh, which is, you know, that conjures up even more images, you know. It really bigs up the importance of what this blue suede deal is. Again, another great example of Paul giving kind of meaningless lyrics that end up doing meaning something in the end. But yeah, all of that goes towards making blue suede what it is. And what it is, is literally one of my favourite McCartney tracks. I'm so happy that I've been able to talk about it in some detail now. And now that I'm sat here, I am now wondering... Is this more successful than Frank Sinatra's party? Ooh, that's a that's a tough guess. I'm going to have to make a poll on the Twitter before I carry on with this recording. One moment, folks. And moving ever onwards, we are now once again forced to contend with the other side of the coin, the inevitable negative results of Paul having true free reign over his musical experimentations and not saying no to any idea. And... That is the occasional song that even I kind of find annoying. This is Bogey Wobble. Let's be honest, this song was never going to do well with me from the get-go, was it? I mean, before I even hear it, I see that the title, Bogey Wobble, and I'm already associating it with the worst of the worst of the McCartney 2 sessions, aka Bogey Music. And, yeah, I shouldn't let that get in the way, but it does. And, thankfully, my bias against Bogey Wobble isn't, like, getting in the way of me appreciating some great lost McCartney instrumental. No, for once, being ignorant and obtuse has paid off. You know, I am tarring this song with Bogey Music's brush, and it's paid off because Bogey Wobble is nothing more than one of those bonus tracks where you go, of course they left it off the final album. Like, I know that in my 
like writings and the way that I speak, there is a bit of a clear delineation and pattern between the songs that I like the most and the ones that I have to say the most about. And while sometimes I do have a song that I hate that I can write an essay about, in this case, with Bogey Wobble, we have a song that I dislike and resent and have such disdain for that I have cut myself off from it emotionally entirely. This sadly means that I have very little to say about it in comparison to say, I'm not gonna repeat it again, but I like a song we've talked about a lot here today. Here today. Possibly the only interesting thing about Bogey Wobble is how little it sounds like Bogey music. Clearly Paul was more than enamored by Fungus the Bogey Man, the children's story character that he must have been reading to his kids at the time. But yeah, of course, there is a high possibility that this is just an instrumental that Paul was doing at the time and just decided to title it in a similar way. But, you know, it does make me wonder whether Paul was toying with the idea of doing a Fungus the Bogeyman like, short film or cartoon in the vein of his soon-to-be-realised Rupert the Bear project. Who knows? Uh, I'm glad it didn't take off. An album of bogey music and bogey wobble would not be in my top 10 McCarty albums of all time, I can tell you that. But yeah, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes Paul's experiments fail, and that's okay. We also know that Paul is sometimes really bad at judging what material to include on an album's track list and what to abandon. You know, we've seen examples of that today. But fortunately, because Paul was so on fire during these home sessions, he was able to correctly see that this experiment has failed, judge it to be as so, and to also correctly never return to it. This means it does work out alright sometimes in the end. And if Paul needs to get a song like this out of his system so that he's able to crack on with and complete the rest of McCartney 2, then listening to this annoying little ditty for a couple of minutes is certainly more than worth it. Next up, and we have one of those songs that you don't think about much, but you do catch yourself singing from time to time. Or maybe I've just confessed to something there. This is Mr. H. Atom. Shangri-Las versus the village people. to moan but did I ever want to do another quick song like Bogey Wobble as we've done three long ass songs in a row now and this really should have been that but fuck me sideways is there ever so much to talk about with Mr. H. Atom of all things it's unreal anyway starting off as with 
almost all McCartney 2 cold cuts, it should be no surprise to anyone listening that I've always had a rather special place in my heart for Mr. H. Atom. It is certainly airing towards the sillier end of the scale rather than the fireman-esque ambient scale of the McCartney 2 soundscapes, but I've always loved how comparatively chaotic and loose this one is. Like, you think it'd be quite restricted and boring with such a basic premise, but no, this one really does hold your attention in the kind of dumbest way possible. <laughs> Though behind that kind of idiotic exterior, there is a kind of deeper, more intelligent, purposeful motive behind this track. And I didn't understand what that was until I read a load of the comments about this track and a load of the writings, and they described it as part of Paul's ongoing dabblings with punk rock. We've had SMA and Boil Crisis before, actually on this series, before. And you really can't keep a good dog down, meaning Paul is back to give punk another stab. The song is simple, fast-paced, chugging along with that rhythm, and features simple, repetitive, shouty, in-your-face, fuck-you vocals, which are all hallmarks of the genre. But admittedly, the McCartney 2 production style does kind of overshadow its inherent punkiness. Like, it, it, it is too far into the sillier end of the scale. At least that's how I felt about it anyway. And it wasn't until I'd read that this was a punky track that I'd even considered it to like, be in that mode. However, that was not always the case, as an earlier take of this cold cut more clearly showcases the original ideas for the song. Are you ready to hear some true, unadulterated, unfiltered Paul McCartney, Mr. H. Atom Punk? I don't think you are. I really don't think you are, folks, but I'm going to trust you anyway. Let's hear it. The village people. take on this song. Of course, that demo is closer to the final Mr. H. Atom than, say, the Blue Suede demo was, but still, with just a few differences, suddenly a classic McCartney synth track with some guitar is now a straight-up McCartney rocker, and not only that, but a pretty damn hard one at that, with a bit of punk thrown in for good measure. Again, that's hard rock in terms of Paul, but still, 
It's yet another example of Maka playing with the idea of going heavier and then not going through with it at all in the end. Still, he clearly has the rudimentaries of the genre down, even if they are like all genres filtered through his own style. Now, one of the best bits about this song is its presence of the other half of the Paul McCartney married couple. Because something you don't get on McCartney 2 is a presence of Linda McCartney. I mean, you do get her on Coming Up, but that's really it in terms of her vocals on the final album. In fact, it makes me wonder if Paul was indeed more isolated during this time, or whether Linda was busier than she was during the McCartney 1 sessions, yada yada yada. Uh, maybe, maybe Paul didn't require the same TLC. But either way, she ain't that present. But here, on Mr. H. Atom, it's her song. She's all over it. It's a Linda lead vocal. And shockingly enough, against the grain, it is fantastic. She begins the song with her usual doing exactly what Paul needs me to do, precise harmonic vocals, but as soon as it goes on, rather like Paul on Monkberry Moon Delight, she gets increasingly loose and crazy, and by the end she's just shouting it, and it feels so amazing to listen to. Like, her amateur, unrefined vocal is so powerful and emotive and primal, and you can just tell that everyone's having a blast, and that energy really is infectious. It really is this peek into an alternative timeline, whereby Paul makes this move into a punkier, harder rock style of rock and roll after the Beatles instead of Wings, where you've got Linda as this screaming, powerful lead vocalist. And honestly, after having listened to this number, that doesn't sound like the worst reality to live in at all. And I'm pretty sure that there are going to be quite a few of you out there who actually prefer this demo version of the song instead. Speaking of female vocalists though, something I did not know about this song going into the writing of this episode was arguably the biggest piece of trivia about it, and potentially one of the most what-the-fuck facts of the entire McCartney 2 sessions. And that is, and you can look this up folks, on the official credits for this song, either online or in Luca Perazzi's amazing books, Linda is supposedly not the only vocalist here. And when you do look up those details, you will find a credit of vocals performed by Paul and Linda McCartney, Twiggy and other. And yes, everyone, that is indeed the same Twiggy as in the iconic 60s fashion model. Yeah, apparently she's friends with the McCartneys and double apparently she was there with them during their home recording sessions in 79. Or not as some sources for this uh, alleged demo version of the song that Twiggy was present for was actually recorded months, maybe even a year beforehand. But yeah, still, it's an amazing little uh, nugget of information, isn't it? I mean, it makes sense that she and Paul, two icons of the 60s, would be friends and know each other. And it's just so great that she, like uh, with Dustin Hoffman on Picasso's Last Words, she can have an impact on... Mr. H. Atom, a fact that is as interesting as it is random as hell. Now, unlike the majority of McCartney's mantra songs, Mr. H. Atom is a case whereby the vocal melody and the instrumental melody are exactly the same throughout. They never change, they never deviate. And yet, 
As you heard, it is literally a matching vocal and instrumental set of notes, making it arguably one of the simplest McCartney compositions ever. But, as we know, Paul can still be very effective with very little. And honestly, I think that's what you get here. This is a bare-bones economic song that gets across its energy and its point and its mood with very little. And if you don't get that message, if you don't get that vibe, that's fine. It's not for you. But this is one of those songs that I do think achieves the objectives that it sets out to do, whether they're good or not. And at the end of the day, this should be more annoying than Temporary Secretary. I really do feel that way, and yet somehow it isn't. And folks, this is coming from a man who has Temporary Secretary as the theme song for his own podcast. Now, what also never deviates are the words themselves, and it feels like it's been hours since we've spoken about McCartney's infatuation with repetition and, you know, threadbare lyricism during these sessions. And again, fortunately, we have that here in spades, and the only lyric we can hear, as always, is a, a simple, basic one, and that is... Mr. H. Atom lives in a flat on the male side of town. <laughs> now, this really is the most repeated phrase probably in any Paul McCartney song. It makes up 99.5% of the lyrics, with the only deviation being Paul coming in to say, the only difference between a male and a female is a single atom of hydrogen. Uh, a comment I'm going to get to very shortly. But we've spoken about how a lot of the time when a line is repeated, it eventually loses its sense of meaning if it had one at the start. But here, Paul is being even more economical. He's saving us even more time because we have a song whose lyrics already meant nothing that mean even less by the time we get to the end of the song. Again, really skewing it towards the end of you're either going to find this really, really fun and enjoyable or really annoying like another certain song. Still, you know, these lyrics are really fun. I love the sheer audacity of McCartney <laughs> in his kind of repetitive assurance that atom and flat on rhyme. Like, I know they kind of half do, but they also kind of half don't as well. I think this is more of the, <laughs> the kind of in-your-face blatant attempts to see how far he can push this mad Professor McCartney persona and see what our own breaking point as audiences Ah, but still everyone, it's a rare day indeed that I sit here in front of you now with my hand on my heart and my fingers uncrossed and say, this is a song, Mr. H. Atom is a song that is saved and improved and is wholly better off because of a Linda McCartney vocal. Boom. And now that we've got some nice trivia out of the way, it's now time for me to bring down the tone and talk about modern interpretations of the lyrics for this song, because... Oh my god, does it have the potential to be perceived as problematic in the modern world? Okay, it doesn't because it wasn't an officially released tune, but you know how things go these days. It could all go wrong. The wrong social justice woke warrior, which sometimes I can be myself. But, you know, if one of these people comes and finds some of Paul's lyrics, then we could be in for a bit of an issue. You know, the modern political and social climate is one where gender is a large part of our lives now. And yet in 1979-80, McCartney was potentially showing he was ahead of the curve when it comes to gender issues. You know, he's not writing a song that says men and women are entirely different. All he's saying is that the only difference between a man and a woman is a single atom of hydrogen. Though, of course, 
the single difference between a man and a woman is a chromosome, not a hydrogen atom, but I digress. You know, I feel like maybe what Paul was trying to do here was to say that either the differences between men and women are imperceptibly small, if there, if there are any differences, or that the differences don't even affect us anyway, because it's just an atom of hydrogen, it's not like brain or your soul or anything like that. And I think that's what he's trying to get at here. The irony, though, is that Paul would actually be flirting with getting in trouble today for even suggesting that there's even a single atom's worth of difference between a man and a woman. And I'm not here creating sides or creating a debate or anything. I'm just saying that it's funny that you know a guy like Paul, who may have been trying to actually be forward-thinking and progressive, like in Elna Rigby and Daytime Nighttime Suffering and all that, and then actually, years later, it doesn't pay off. I think that's quite funny and ironic. But yeah, enough of that. Let's talk about other modern marvels. Or, well, not marvels, really, more like plagues. Um, we've got to talk about memes, everyone. Yes, because the most culturally significantly relevant part of this song, you know, I've, I've got to appeal to the Skylar Moody TikTok crowd. You know the bit at the start, everyone, when Paul shouts out, Shangri-Las versus the village people, in a very problematic accent that I probably shouldn't have imitated, actually. But, yeah, the Shangri-Las were a 60s female pop group. And why is that culturally relevant today? Well, Paul borrowed a hook from the Shangri-Las, actually, for use in the Beatles anthology track, Free as a Bird. You know the one. I'll play the clip. Well, friends, as iconic and as memorable and as emotional as it is, it's not exactly original. You know, the other Threetles were under a lot of pressure to find something that would fit what John had written. And John was likely influenced by the Shangri-Las themselves when writing it. But it is literally just their song, Remember. Let's have a listen to that. And that's not even the culturally relevant bit. Oh, I'm sorry, everyone. I am going to do this. I am just filling up time here on an episode that's probably already too long. But but anyone on TikTok, YouTube Reels or Shorts or Instagram or whatever it's all called will be more than aware of this song, but not in a way that they will recognise as the Shangri-Las Remember has now become a meme or stinger that is put over footage of basically anything bad happening. So that could be someone falling over, or it can be the storming of the White House on January 6th. And whatever the fail is, whatever the fuck up is, it'll be followed by this sound.
For any of my older listeners out there, you know who you are. It's the fucking majority of you. But yeah, if you don't do TikTok or memes, just let me tell you that you have no idea how popular and ubiquitous that meme is or kind of mostly was. It's kind of phased out a bit now. But like anything of any cultural merit in this world, of course it has an obscure ass link to the Beatles. They are everywhere. That's ubiquity. But yeah, I'm sorry if this was a bit of a digression. I just didn't know where else I'd be able to vent this kind of information other than here. So I seized my opportunity. So yeah, that was Mr. H. Atom, a song that I have quite the affinity for. But that is not the end of the story, as there are two quasi-medleys from the McCartney 2 sessions. And once again, despite Paul blending them together pretty well, the pairing is totally arbitrary and I have no idea why it exists. Let's see if the grass is greener on the other side, folks. This is You Know I'll Get You Baby. jam is McCartney jamming with himself on synth instruments whilst isolated up in Scotland, probably on far too much alcohol and marijuana, then I'm far more inclined to get into the groove. And get into the groove I did. I mean, it's not a song that I remember an awful lot or catch myself singing from time to time, but it is a pleasant surprise whenever I'm doing my deep dive into McCartney too. And the moment it comes on, I forget that I forgot about it and I'm deeply singing along completely lost in it, as per. And whilst you know me, folks, as being someone who loves to stretch out the length of a podcast and overly pontificate, I must say that, at the end of the day, this is a very simple song that probably doesn't require as much exploration as its pleasures are entirely surface level. Doesn't mean it's bad or anything, just that you only have to hear it to get it. But, because I don't want this song to feel left out, I'm still going to give it its fair due. Folks, if you remember back to when I used to do the blog a little more often, like whenever there was like a, a ranking like of 20 things, there would always be one thing that I'd leave blank or like just do one sentence for. And whilst that was under the guise of being comedic, a lot of that was just me trying to like not write as much. So uh, you, you can see how much I've changed. Anyway, this song is a beat that McCartney bleeds every last drop out of. The bass and synths start off the melody and they do not stop for the entire just under four-ish minutes of runtime. And thankfully, it's a fun one. Yeah, it's not deep or complicated or even that intricate. Like this is just Paul getting into a groove, finding that groove and sticking with it for better or worse. And thankfully it is a beat that does get your head bopping. And 
on top of that, this is one of those tracks where McCartney knows that you, you could kind of get bored with this just repeating over and over again. And so he always just drops in a new minor element, often enough just to keep the track a little more dynamic and interesting. There'll be a new synth or percussion or vocal somewhere. But unlike the other songs on this list, he doesn't just keep layering for layering sake like a madman. And instead, he actually takes things in, takes things out. And it's actually a little more free-flowing and ambient, leaning closer maybe towards a bit like Secret Friend, even though they're not the same style at all. You know, overall, there's oddly quite a uh, reserved element of his production going on here. I mean, this applies to the entire McCartney 2 sessions, but it really is fun to build up the list of instruments and settings Paul had at his disposal in your head when, when you listen to one of these songs. And it, and it becomes a fun game trying to spot, to spot what he's utilising. And it's almost like trying to spot the samples he used on the first Fireman album, you know? Oh, speaking of simplicity, actually, one of the funniest things about this song is Paul's decision to use one of the most bog-standard, run-of-the-mill production techniques when he shifts the song for that raised key change for the final run-through of the track. Like, it's so dull and rubbish that I'm actually shocked that Paul even knew it existed as a function in songwriting. I really do. Now, I know for a lot of you there won't be an awful lot going on here and you won't begrudge its lack of inclusion on the final album, but that's one of the things I find so fascinatingly tragic about this track. Out of all of the cold cuts from McCartney 2 that were abandoned and not given the full Richard Niles treatment, I think this is the song least deserving of that status. Like, I know that I don't have any actual examples of what could have been done with this track to improve it, but my gut instinct tells me that Niles and Paul together could have done something, you know, worthwhile with this track. It's another perfectly simple bedrock that you could go full-on blue sway with, and yet they didn't. Maybe it's just too simple. Maybe there's just not enough you can do to it. I don't know, but I don't know. Paul, one more album, maybe even one of the bonus tracks could be you going back to You Know I'll Get You Baby. You know you want to. Keeping in line with the rest of these sessions, we've got more minimalist lyrics, and it does make me wonder why Paul felt these kind of mantra songs were all missing something because none of them made it onto the final album. Like, we get two instrumentals from McCartney 2, so it does seem strange that Macca didn't just, like, ditch the whole improv scat thing and work on some more uh, either instrumental melodies or proper lyrics for these songs because clearly there was something worth working on in the first place. Clearly there was something worth, you know, putting his artistic efforts into and then to not have that be represented at all on McCartney 2 is kind of odd. Also, we've heard Paul bemoan how much work he has to do on all these vocal tracks, uh, you know, live for these sessions. But if that's the case, then he must have spent hours doing the vocal for these songs because there seems to be an innumerable number of Pauls in the background here. And what I love about this track is that more so than any of the tracks McCartney himself mentions, it flawlessly demonstrates how McCartney's boredom with each take leads to better and better results. You know, the more bored he gets and the more of these takes he does, the more that inspires him to do crazier and sillier and more fun things with the track. Yet, it's actually still harmonious and it all works. You know, his instincts are just flawless here. They just are. And with that, everyone, we're now going to take a quick break. I know we normally do this in the middle of the podcast, but I wanted to do all of the McCartney 2 stuff before we settle the matter of the... 
housekeeping. Starting off with the news, what do we have in terms of Paul and Beetle World? Well, we have a little update about now and then to start us off, or should I say the lack of now and then? And this comes from a really good extended interview that Ringo did with AP News uh, at the end of September. I think it was like on the 29th. And whilst I would recommend that you all go and check it out regardless, the highlight concerning this show and my future content output was a brief comment he made on Now and Then. Basically, he, he just said, it should have been out already. That's the only thing he's given in terms of a specificity. That's the only thing he's given in terms of a specificity towards the date. So clearly there's been some sort of delay going on here. Is this like McCartney 3 and it's like a production thing? Like they're struggling to get the vinyl made or something? Is it a technological one? Is it because they're having, you know, a struggle to like make this AI sound good in crappy 15 pound earphones bought off Amazon? Or is this based on potential backlash? Like, did they announce a, like a potential release date for this? Then they saw that everyone was kind of going mad about the AI, and now they're going back to like change things. I'm just wildly speculating, we don't know, but that's an update on now and then. Ringo saying it should have been out already. So he knows something that we don't, hopefully we'll know soon. Next up, because this whole segment is just now me talking about Beatles auctions, we have another Beatles auction to, to talk about. A fascinating collection of never-before-seen photos of the Fabs performing in Scotland have emerged on sale for £10,000. The 50 black and white snaps were taken during a show in Dundee on the 20th of October 1964 and were taken by a late professional photographer known as John Young who was granted access to the Beatles' changing room on the night. There's a really cool picture of Paul on the drums. Actually, they are great snaps. Apparently, they're going for 10 grand. I don't know if they're going to go for that much. Again, hopefully we'll get updates in the future. But there was one quote that did make me laugh. Uh, this was from the auctioneer. They said, As the years go by, it's less and less likely that we will find unseen images of the band such as these. So we've just had Paul McCartney's book of photography. We've just had 50 more photographs here. We had another auction with photographs a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, 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 we're really running dry on these unseen Beatle photographs. No, actually folks, I reckon we've got hundreds, if not thousands of unseen Beatle photographs that are gonna come forth in the near future. And finally, everyone, we have an announcement. Paul has done the, un the unthinkable, really. Uh, rather than say, going on other people's podcasts and being a guest and being a really big bump for them, <coughs> Instead, Paul has gone ahead and made a podcast. Yes, we are no longer officially the Paul McCartney podcast, but we do have the, all the donations for that still. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure I've probably annoyed someone at NPL there. Uh, you know, hit me up if you want to buy it off me, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, Paul has gone ahead and made a podcast. It is called Paul McCartney, A Life in Lyrics. And the first three episodes are now out. The first one is an introduction to the podcast and what it's about, and the other two are about specific songs. The whole podcast is a kind of adjacent project, uh, a kind of supplementary piece of material to the Paul McCartney lyrics book that came out a couple of years ago 
This podcast is made in conjunction with Paul Muldoon, the man who put that book together. And essentially, each episode is a song from the lyrics book that Paul talks about. There is also a host that interjects here and there, and that's all the questions, yada, 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 gives all the context. Um, look, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going to go into too much detail. I have listened to them, I have lots to say, and I will indeed be doing a podcast about his podcasts <laughs> as more podcasts come out. I will pass judgment on them then, though I am very excited to talk about it. I can't believe there is a Paul McCartney podcast that's not me or Two Legs, and that it's an actual Paul McCartney podcast. Very exciting, yet also kind of scary stuff. But yeah, that is it in terms of news. No deaths this week, everyone. Cheers. Hooray. And right onto the plugs. To get any content with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Whatever the topic is, no matter how loosely related to Paul or the Beatles it is, I always love reading out your correspondence here on the show. Haven't had one in a while. Come on. Come on, folks. One of you out there must be self-opinionated enough to come in and write some of your own thoughts. You can't all agree with what I've been talking about on this podcast here today. Here today. I mean, come on. That must have annoyed at least one of you. But yeah, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. If you want daily updates or instant contact through Messenger, then follow us on our Twitter page. That's at McCartneyPod. I always like to post silly stuff there every day, of course. If you want Paul or Nothing content, but you don't like the sound of my voice, then you can check out the blog and have it in written form at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. But I begin Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Also, YouTube is where you can find our sister show, Macca in Your Attic, where me and a guest go through their McCartney slash Beatle memorabilia collections. Of course, last week's guest, Max Komu, was originally a guest on Macca in Your Attic. Go and check out that episode if you haven't already. Finally, if you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us some form of interaction. A like, a thumbs up, a heart, a tick a comment, some stars, a share, talking about us to a friend, you know, graffitiing on a government building. Anything you can do to promote the show is greatly appreciated, whether in real life or through the algorithm. And finally, if you enjoy the show, if you like what I'm doing here, if you like the fact that there's no ads besides the housekeeping segment, then please consider joining my Patreon page. The Patreon is a way that you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. You know, if you want to help keep the lights running or help me just get a little bit of extra vinyl to review on the show, then it's a way you can do that. It's like giving me a cup of coffee every month, that's what they say. But it's not just a gimme, you do get your money's worth. You do get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get uh, a week's early access to all episodes of Mac in Your Attic. You get instant access to the video feed. So any interview I do with someone else over, over Skype will immediately and unedited go straight up on the Patreon. You get all the scripts I use for the show. There's lost episodes of Paul or Nothing. There's bonus ones. There's all sorts of weird curios on there. And finally, there's also the Patreon-exclusive vlog, where every week I also do a bonus little episode of Paul or Nothing, where I talk about a little topic that I don't quite have time for here on the show. Last time I did a What If album where I talked about Wings Rarities, akin to the Beatles Rarities album. And the next one coming out, spoiler alert for the patrons here, will be me talking about 
all of the different names and monikers and identities that Paul McCartney has ever used. I call it the many names of Macca, which is also a name that he uses. So yeah, if you like this show, folks, if you like what I'm doing here for free in my spare time, and you think I deserve some form of monetary reward for it, then please consider joining the Patreon. It is certainly worth your while. You do get loads of bonus content. But yeah, that's enough for the shameless plugs. I'm going to stop begging you for money now. We're going to get right back on with the show. And now that all of the McCartney 2 stuff is over, we're now going to crack on with one of the most all-over-the-place, possibly worst McCartney recording sessions ever. And that is, of course, the Puggins Hall rehearsal sessions in the summer to autumn of 1980. The first song to represent this segment is called Nature Is Calling Me. I got to go, God's nature's calling me. Did I just got to go? I just got to go. I got to go, God's nature's calling me. Say, I got got to go, but to be a nature's calling me. I got to go, oh, be be. Go to get last hours along the law. Now, if you're wondering why you've never heard of this song, don't worry, I hadn't either. And it was only thanks to the likes of the bootleg compilation collection Momax Hidden Tracks that I even stumbled across it at all. And you know what? Despite the fact that this track hails from one of the most depressing periods of the McCartney narrative, it isn't all that bad. Is it good? No, no, not really. But it is still worth knowing in that way that knowing all hot hits and cold cuts give you a better 3D perspective of our man Paul. Still, out of all of the tug-of-war material, I do sympathise with George Martin's decision most here to cut this track, as A, it is lacklustre as all hell, B, Macca certainly can do better, and C, George Martin has seen it into the future and knows there's going to be a country song on the album anyway. Not one that ends up being much better, but still one nonetheless, with a guest star. So... As the story goes, it is July 1980, and Wings have not yet formally broken up. And since they are going through the motions, they're going to get back together to play some new songs, rehearse some old ones, and start mapping out the next album. Now, this is all very well and good, but as a band, they have not done anything formally since the Japanese weed bust and the cancelled tour. And on top of that, in between that time... McCartney has released a solo album, and a bloody good one at that. So, you can see these Puggins rehearsals through the lens of Paul double-checking whether he can actually enjoy working with these people, like, if the dynamic is still there at all. Although, you don't have to be a clinical psychologist or a specialist in human dynamics to clearly hear that, you know, 
things aren't going well. You know, this recording is very emblematic of the sessions in Puggins Hall. There's poor sound quality, bad mic setup, and most importantly, a real lack of energy in the room. The end is nigh, folks, and you can hear it on tape. And I can only assume how awkward it must have been in that room at that moment at Puggins Hall. But Sam, what the hell is a is a Puggins Hall? Stop saying Puggins Hall all the time. Well, in case you're wondering what a Puggins Hall is, I'll quickly read this quote from Club Sandwich issue 31. It reads, Puggins Hall Tenterden was the otherwise inauspicious venue. It was named after Augustus Welby Puggin, the Victorian architect who designed the interior of the Houses of Parliament and who died insane at Ramsgate aged 40. Now, whilst I'd love to pontificate on the significance of a man dying at at Ramsgate being uh, associated with Paul McCartney, Ram, you know, the actual interesting thing about this particular location, folks, is how it even further signifies the end of Wings. Paul during the tenure of that band, he was really interested in flourishing creativity with new locations. You know, we had Lagos, New Orleans, the Virgin Islands, Limpin Castle for Back to the Egg. And now we have Puggins Hall. It's a bit of a step down indeed, especially, you know, considering Paul is going to splash all the cash on the expensive-ass Montserrat studio sessions. But... Before he decides on doing that, he has to shit-can the band. But he isn't going to shit-can the band somewhere expensive, or even somewhere far. Let's just quickly go on Google Maps now, folks. I've actually done this. So, for Paul to go to <laughs> Tenterden, which features Puggins Hall, Paul only has to drive 31 minutes. So he literally just picked a venue that was half an hour down the road. Yeah, it's telling. As you can hear, though, the song really is in its early stages, as there's no real sense of riff or anything outside of the chords Paul used to write the song. Despite the band's best efforts, the song is clearly unfinished to the point that it sounds rather bland and empty, unlike something like, you know, I'll get your baby or Blue Sway. You know, there's no potential for this song to be saved 10, 20, 50 years later. Now, we can also hear from the way the instruments and backing vocals somewhat sheepishly enter the track that this recording is likely the first time the rest of the band has even heard this song. Now, what I am rather suspicious of is whether this song was even written beforehand and was presented to them as such, or if Paul is literally like improvising and vamping on the spot with this one. Of course, we've all seen him write and record Get Back in front of our very eyes in Peter Jackson's Get Back film, so this wouldn't be too surprising, especially when you consider that Get Back is a masterpiece and this, well, isn't. One of the song's only redeeming factors is that it is straight-up country wings, something that we really haven't seen since, like, Send Me the Heart or Sally G., And so it's nice that that kind of vibe was still on the cards for for Paul and the band at this point. For anyone feeling a little nostalgic for the early era of Wings, whilst listening to this song, you are not alone, as I too was instantly reminded of that simple, no-frills, bog-standard, wildlife-era Wings with this track. And it does add a wonderful bit of symmetry to these last rehearsals. 
The only other thing that did pique my interest with this song when I was first going through it was the fact that it had the word nature in the title. Of course, this is a topic that McCartney has gone back to several times since his own iconic Mother Nature's Son on the White Album, and then we had Wildlife as well. And so I was excited to see what he was going to add to his pantheon of environmental tunes. And as it turns out, not a lot really. For our next track, we have another Puggins Hall original, Oy vey, and we have a song that sounds like it would have been far more appropriate for Paul's current set list. The perfect companion piece to fur you, this is Old Man Loving. Like the last Puggins Hall number, you may be forgiven for not even knowing this song at all, but even more so, as this isn't even a Paul McCartney song. Yes, as you heard there, this is actually a Denny Lane composition, and so it actually has 0% chance of appearing in any set lists for the next leg of the Got Back tour. Regardless, it's always nice to have any Denny Lane content on this podcast, and what's even better is that it's a genuine surprise. Do I wish that it was a better Denny Lane song? Well, yes, of course I do. But it has that special effortless charm that all Lane cuts do contain. And whilst I am a little biased as fuck here, I think even the most cynical of you out there could see that there was some potential for this one. Now, something that we should point out is that Paul isn't the only person who goes back and revives old songs around this period. With Denny's album, Japanese Tears, that we reviewed with Chloe Costello, Denny would bring back I Would Only Smile, Weep For Love, and Send Me The Heart. And, as it turns out, Denny would do the same thing again with Old Man Loving, and the song would be re-sculpted as an instrumental for his 1988 album, Master Sweet. We actually played the instrumental version of that during our housekeeping segment, so... Go back and listen to it if you haven't, uh, if you skipped ahead, you naughty thing you. Also, thanks to Chloe's YouTube channel for teaching me this fact, by the way. The next thing this particular recording did highlight for me, though, was just how long, and maybe like stop and start, the tug-of-war rehearsal sessions truly went on for, as this was recorded on the 30th of October 1980. So, when was the last one recorded? Let's just quickly check. Yeah, that's July 1980. So, they're doing this for months. They're really dragging this out. Uh, this is a death by a thousand cuts. And I'm a little confused. 
does it indicate that Paul was still quite committed to the band and he was really putting them through the paces for this new album and that the decision to break up Wings was like a very swift and final one? Like, it had to have been. Like, like Tug of War was going to be recorded in, in only about five months and yet Paul's working on a Denny Lane song with him here. It's all very up in the air. Anything is possible. And I feel like we do need to do a proper episode on the actual breakdown of the band during this period, because I, I, I'm i not quite sure what's happening. Like, was the Wings thing just a panicky situation? Did George Martin just say something to Paul at the wrong time? I'm not sure. Because, you know, obviously he would bring Denny along with him, and he's married to Linda, so that's still the entire core Wings group would still be on tug of war. Anyway, let's talk about Paul here, because, again, the band's breaking up, but he's at least minimally interested in writing and collaborating with Denny Lane on a song he's writing. You know, it is clear that Denny having a song on the Wings version of Tug of War was certainly, again, a possibility. Anything can happen. And so it would make sense for Paul to help nurture and bring one up to spec, as it were, ready for the recording. Plus, at the end of the day, there's a song or two on Tug of War that I honestly wouldn't mind replacing with a decent Denny Lane number. Not this one. But I'm going to choose to live in my own fantasy world where Tug of War was a Wings band and the Denny Lane number was another No Words. But yeah, the important point here is, folks, is that Paul is actually still collaborating with Denny. It does show that if there's anyone in Wings he's still interested in, it is Denny. But for how long? Though you can actually hear Paul talking shop with Mr. Lane on this track, dis- you know, discussing the chords, the vocal melody, and overall doing his, I'm just trying to help you write the song, kind of shtick, which does to me suggest a level of involvement. Of course, at this point in the band, Denny only sings lead on his own songs, though you can tell rather like No Words that this is instantly a Denny and Paul collab rather than a Denny solo joint, merely from the frequency that the word love is used. It does structurally feel less like one of Denny's more bluesy numbers, but lyrically the idea of old man loving does sound like either of them could have come up with it. I mean, they are now both men entering their 40s, with Denny possibly drawing upon the image of like the old bluesman, and Paul had already previously sung about lonely old people. So, you know, it's definitely within their wheelhouse. What did excite me about this particular recording was how present Linda and Paul were, though, on the vocals. Like, not only is Paul clearly writing this track, but he's also helping compose it and produce it and oh my god we actually get some classic wings trio vocals on this cold cup again this lends credence to the everything's business as usual atmosphere that's going on Uh, the plaster definitely has not been pulled off yet wings are still a go and even though these are like unenthusiastic puggins hall demos when these three start singing you can't take away the magic from those iconic three-part harmonies So yeah, this one's alright-ish. Again, I do have my own Denny-based biases here, but I do think it's cool that Denny was as productive and as committed as he was at this point in the band's history, especially, you know, with all the friction going on. And we know from Japanese Tears that Denny wasn't exactly hiding any, you know, A-class golden songs from Paul, you know, to uh, squirrel away for his own solo career. 
And so it makes sense that a song like this exists. Do I wish it were better? Sure. But you can't always have interesting and good in the same cold cut, can you? Right, time to leave Puggins Hall behind. And now we can move on to some material that George Martin actually made McCartney bin. Yes, we're going to move on to some material specifically created for Tug of War without having wings in mind this time. And the first of those songs is called Give Us a Chord Roy. we've already heard some songs that George Martin spectacularly straight up said were not good enough on the last episode with tracks like Boyle Crisis and Seems Like Old Times but with Give Us a Corduroy we are now in the era of songs where Paul is intentionally writing stuff for a new album in some way though it's not as a wings project though if you were shown this song out of context you probably would have assumed that it had come straight out of the McCartney 2 sessions but no. It is clear that with a song like this, or even Tug of Peace on Pipes of Peace, that this electronica synth-based music had not left his veins at all, and he was still very much interested in pursuing it, from tracks like Do You Want to Dance and Robber's Ball, all the way up to Good Sign and Peacocks, all non-album tracks by the way. Paul has clearly been obsessed with this kind of music, and yet it represents such a small part of his official discography, with all of it basically being corralled and hidden on the aforementioned McCartney 2 or on B-sides. However, it does seem like that is mostly due to other people's wants and other people's perceptions of who Paul is and what he should be, rather than just being interested in him as an artist and what he might want to do individually. To me, it is clear that since he didn't do an album of synthy stuff for another 13 years and only did so under a non-commercial pseudonym, lends credence to the idea that the main reason he doesn't do it, even though in hindsight we would love him to have done, is because he simply thinks that this kind of music is not commercial enough. As we heard Youth say in the Rushes episode, Paul does think commercially, and in the post-1980 period, maybe his most commercially-minded period ever. With good reason, you know. He's ditched wings, he's no longer associated with the Beatles either, and so he's going to have to reinvent himself again. Which not only does mean he's going to have to kind of play a little more to the crowd and do some commercial stuff, which was inevitably going to happen anyway because he was working with George Martin, 
But Paul might also not want to do two albums in a row of McCartney 2 stuff, lest he get pigeonholed into a single genre, which is something he never, ever wants to do. Although, uh, am I the only one that finds it interesting that this McCartney 2 sound could have jumped over to Tug of War? Like, could you imagine if Paul had made George Martin sit through the mad Professor McCartney-style sessions? I think that would come out with a few good quotes from a few choice people. But yeah, when you've got George Martin and a, and a professional studio and quotas and a deadline and expected album targets, you're not going to do it like McCartney too. And furthermore, the fact that Martin did keep any of this sound off until, you know, the throwaway album that is Pipes of Peace uh, lends me to believe that not only does he not like this older style of music, but he actually probably didn't like McCartney too in general and wanted to directly and consciously air away from that sound. So yeah, it's not a surprise that this didn't make the final cut. Production-wise, this song is arguably even more challenging, different, and all-around weirder than what we got from McCartney 2 with Paul, though. And knowing that the album now was moderately successful, it almost feels like he was trying to push the McCartney 2 sound and the soundscapes and the style and the production and the wackiness, maybe to see just how much we as an audience can take. I mean, I know McCartney 2 wasn't widely universally acclaimed at the time like it is now, but maybe this is just another little experiment of Paul's, just to see what could be. Though, most interesting for me, being this is a McCartney 2-esque song, is that it was not recorded at the spirit of Ranashan Studios up in Scotland, meaning more than likely this was either recorded down at Hog Hill Mill or up in Cavendish, meaning that this is a McCartney 2 song, perhaps recorded at the locale of McCartney 1 or McCartney 3. And, yeah, you, there is a noticeable difference. It is clear that there are a lot of sounds and tricks that he learned on McCartney 2, and they're used to great effect here. But what I like so much about this song, though, and what makes it stand out compared to the other synthy stuff on McCartney 2, is how dark and dirty and almost leaning more into like a, a punky air, you know? Like this whole thing is just one big dirge, just really stretched out, heavy, fuzzy, messy notes. Like not only is Paul now playing with the conventions of songwriting, but now he's also, also like playing with the studio as well in a bit more of a adventurous way. Yeah, he's being even more adventurous than McCartney too, I said it. I also love Paul's breathy falsetto on this one, and we even get a better horse hoof clippity clop than what we got on all you horse riders. It's also nice to see that Paul has taken the lyrical and vocal stylings of McCartney 2 back home with him as well, for we have yet another song that we can't understand the bloody word he's saying on. Well, you kinda can. And it is easier to understand what he's riffing on about compared to previous tracks. But still, as ever, the important point is that Paul wants to get across one phrase, one idea, one mantra, and that is, give us a chord, Roy. He wants a man named Roy to give him a chord. Well, what chord does he want? Is it the chord being played on the song? And who the hell is Roy? Yes, folks. I don't believe the man named Roy is asking for a chord, as in, like, a, a cable. 
It's a C-H-O-R-D. He's asking for a chord. It's a phrase that Paul likely would have heard in the studio a thousand times. And odds are that the phrase was said to him one day, perhaps by someone named Roy. And, you know, it sparked something creative in Paul's mind. And then he just, with him being him, he had to obsessively make a song to clear it out of his head. The chord in the song is in E, so that's probably the chord they were asking for. And the only Roy I can think of in Paul's life might be like Roy Orbison, but even I recognise that's a bit of a stretch. Before we end, though, there is a possibility that I must address. Rather like the, well, do you all remember the, the biker like an icon pun, where rather than just being biker like an icon, there was like a camera pun, so it was biker like a Nikon, so Leica and Nikon are two camera companies, and so there is a slim possibility, folks, that this is another shitty Paul McCartney pun joke song in the sense that the words Cord Roy might be a pun on the material Corduroy. Again, could be a massive stretch. I'm not saying I'm willing to die on this hill, but reasonable doubt there is some definitely yeah hi everyone sam here just doing a little bit of a editor's note i literally just added the song give us a corduroy to the uh, track for this podcast and i actually did just hear some of the lyrics and one of the lyrics are um give us a corduroy keep it simple nice and baggy like your pants like your pants now that proves to me that this whole song is about corduroy trousers. End of story. Let's get back to the show. But yeah, that was Give Us a Corduroy, a.k.a. the bonus McCartney 2 song. And I'm never going to turn down or say anything bad about McCartney 2-esque sounding material. You know, in the same way that I'll never decry any RAM material that shows up later in the discography. And considering how many of the B-sides for the Tug of War singles were album tracks... It is a little shame that this one didn't sneak past George Martin's censorships. Anyway, we're going to press on. And considering how much techno and synth we've had in this episode, it's only right that we balance things out and take things back with one of the most Tin Pan Alley McCartney songs to never play a vaudeville theatre. This is Stop, You Don't Know Where She Came From. You better stop You don't know where she
everyone. 99.999% of the time, I am a complete sucker for any song where McCartney does his old world music hall thing. You know, his approach to pre-rock and roll music is always enjoyable as it is insightful. And no one does it quite like Paul. But this is in the 1% or the 0.01%. And it is the exception that proves the rule, whatever the hell that means. This should be well up my alley, and instead it's all the way up my ass, and not in that once a year on your birthday kind of way. Like, don't get me wrong, I do kind of semi-ironically enjoy this song for how all over the place it is, but that's not the same thing, is it? You know, ironic praise is not real praise. What's wrong with it? It just doesn't hit the mark, does it? It doesn't have the sincerity or the kind of genuine, I don't know, heartfelt intentions that these songs normally do have, it does sound a bit more of like a piss take or so much of a specific impression or impersonation of an artist that it loses all sense of who Paul is and it just becomes... I mean... To be fair, maybe if it was part of a big show-off-y piano medley like we got on the James Paul McCartney or one-hand-clapping TV specials, then yeah, it'd be fine. But to present this to George Martin with a straight face is insane. If anything, being the de facto number one head honcho for so long has clearly affected Paul's ability to choose the best material, and an outside opinion like Martin's was clearly the correct move. Why so? Well... Just look at how successful Tug of War was. Also, am I the only one that feels like Paul should stay the fuck away from song titles with She Came in them? As all I can think of now is, no, no, Paul, we do know where she came from. She came in through the bathroom window. But yeah, let's just go back to that voice because it it is the majority of what grates me about this. Uh, Paul's done all manner of crazy characters with a wide range of silly-ass voices, many of which we've heard on this episode. But there's just something about this particular silly voice, or the way it works slash doesn't work. But something is just straight up annoying, and I can't move past it. I feel like he's missing the nod and the wink to the audience, and we're just having to sit through this. Like, you know all those times when you just kind of picture Paul making the band, or the group, or whoever he's with, like, like listen to old 50s standards, or older and like they all just want to play rock and roll. That's what I'm getting with this song here, actually. Maybe if Paul just scrapped the vocal and kept the backing track, then maybe he could do something with it, because there's actually quite a little catchy bass line and Hammond-esque orgo combo that, by all rights, should be winning me over. But when it's paired with that voice, it's just an instant turn-off. And so instinct tells me that the whole thing should just be permanently abandoned and never resurrected. The only thing close to something interesting with this song is the fact that it really does show that ballroom dancing and another track we're going to talk about today weren't just like these kind of offshoots of his songwriting interests in this period. If anything, the relentless synthy weirdness that he's been indulging in likely caused him to have a reaction on the opposite end of the scale and go back to his classic, you know, Jim Max band kind of sound. Though, if only this song was a quarter as good as ballroom dancing, eh? 
Something else that also doesn't work in this song's favour is the fact that it's unfinished. And I don't mean like Teddy Boy unfinished, whereby, you know, you just feel like Paul's teacher urging him to complete their homework because you know he can do a little bit better. No, this is the kind of student you send home or to metal shop or woodwork where they can learn some practical skills because they're clearly not flourishing here in the more academic classes. It's not bad because it's unfinished, it's just bad. Now, back in the day, the typical modus operandi for the show was that if I came across a song fragment, I'd typically be rather lenient towards it as I can't judge it till it's fully complete. But here, like a four-year-old, after tasting one green bean, I don't need any more to judge the rest. Yes, folks, I am prejudiced towards Stop, You Don't Know Where She Came From. And you know what? I'm going to end it there. The song sucks. It deserves to be a second-class citizen in the McCartney songbook. I don't want it to have freedom of travel. I don't want it to have the right to vote. And when it sees me walking down the songwriting street, then it better keep its fucking eyes on the ground. Bringing up the tone slightly and following ever onwards, we come to the third song of this episode, whose existence I did not know about at all until I began writing my notes. Fresh off the factory and cutting room floors... This is Unbelievable Experience. title or whatever, but I could have sworn that this song was part of that clade of specific cold cuts where they were written for the soundtrack of a movie. Like, I could imagine a film being called Unbelievable Experience in the 70s or 80s, but that is not the case. Uh, We do have a couple of those in the next episode, however. What we do have, though, is a song that is very clearly a part of the clade of McCartney songs, rather like Give Us a Corduroy and Give Us Corduroy, It's all based around a single language or writing gimmick. With this one, it's just simply 
believing in an unbelievable experience. Clearly, you know, Paul liked the idea, and that can be enough for him. Though, if that is the explanation entirely behind everything going on with this song, you can understand why George Martin didn't exactly think there was all that much to it and decided to drop it like a lead balloon. However, I, for one, am rather fond of this little ditty. In fact, I think I love it. Granted, I'm not a record producer with my artist presenting it to me as a potential track that I actually have to work on in all seriousness, but I think, for what it is, Unbelievable Experience is a very cute little curio that thoroughly washes the bad taste of the last track out of my mouth. You know, this track features a hilarious yet catchy vocal from Paul, some delightfully corny lounge lizard keyboards, and a hook that has had its way with me from the very first moment I heard it. Now, I can feel a lot of you out there furrowing your brows as I'm basically praising a corny-ass song like this after I trashed an equally corny stop you don't know where she came from. But I think that this is just a clear-cut, better example of cornball, goofball Paul. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I am tempted to leave it down to taste, but there's also another part of me that strongly feels like this is just an experiment with a better outcome. I'm sorry, it just works more as a song. Yes, it is equally unfinished and incomplete and probably drove George Martin equally as mad. But the difference is Paul genuinely comes across as quite sincere and like he's trying on this one and that it actually could be developed into a real song. Like, I can't believe that the last track, Stop You Don't Know Where She Came From, was even considered by Paul alongside, say, ballroom dancing. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is they really shouldn't have thrown the baby out with the bathwater with this one. Like, we could have even had a George Martin, Paul McCartney medley featuring this song. That would have been nice. Or maybe even, like, some sort of potential McCartney link track or hidden track, like Can You Take Me Back or Cosmically Conscious. Or maybe even the theme tune for some non-existent 70s British sitcom. Either way, he certainly left me wanting more with this tune, and it is another worthy entry in my personal logbook of songs that I'd like to hear Paul return to. But that truly would be an unbelievable experience, wouldn't it now? And now, folks, we're going to start wrapping things up with our last couple of songs, and usually on these episodes, the Hot Hits and Cold Cuts, there's only like normally one you know, deep vein of songs that I'm really excited to talk about, but luckily here, I am blessed with two, because we are now going to bookend this with another fantastic Paul McCartney album, another very important part of his career. We're going to move on to the actual tug-of-war sessions proper. However, with this first song, its association with the album and its single is hardly the most well-known fact about it. Put on your solemn hats once again, folks, because we're going to talk about Rain Clouds.
song might not be in the upper echelons of everyone's own personal McCartney canon, for me, this is one of the most simplistically joyous and uplifting songs he's ever written. Not only that, it's also a testament to McCartney doing a less is more kind of song. There really isn't an ounce of fat on this thing. It's efficient, it's simple, it does the job, and it's fucking sick. Like, I know we talk about songs that are only enjoyable on a surface level, and I was tempted to use that particular phrasing here, but it just doesn't cut the mustard, as I do, in fact, have a deep emotional connection to this song. Do I have a connection to anything in particular? Not really, and even though I detest this phrase, it is all about the vibes. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that this song, in spite of the fact that it really isn't all that special, makes me feel overwhelmingly happy whenever I put it on. And no word of a lie, I even caught myself smiling whilst thinking about this song as if it was some sort of long-lost old friend. Speaking of long-lost old friends, though, let's stick with the way we've been doing things around here and just tear off the band-aid. There are no two ways about it, everyone. But Rain Clouds was recorded on the 8th of December 1980. And for those of you who know your dates, you will know this as the day that John Lennon was shot and killed by dickheads unnamed outside of the Dakota Hotel in New York City. An overdub session the following day, December 9th, was scheduled to take place just hours after McCartney heard the news about his former bandmate. When recalling the incident, producer and former Lennon collaborator slash mentor George Martin said, That day that John was killed will always stay with me. We were working in London, and as soon as I heard the news that morning, I rang Paul and asked him if he wanted to stay at home. Of course, he wanted to get away, and he came to the studio and we talked about John endlessly. It was so difficult to believe that our friend had been assassinated by a deranged fan. Now, just for anyone who is confused by the dates there, of course, America is several hours behind in the time zones. So whilst John was, of course, assassinated on the 8th, Paul wouldn't have found out until the morning of the 9th. Anyway, George Martin was not the only big name who remembered that day. Beatles mainstay Jeff Emmerich was also at Air Studios that day, and he remembers it as thus. By the time I arrived at Air, the building was surrounded by hordes of screaming reporters and television crews. And while a grim George Martin arrived, what a tragedy was all he could bring himself to say. Beneath his veneer of British reserve, I could sense that he was shaken to the core. A short while later, Paul himself walked in, subdued, pensive and deep in thought. For a few moments, the three of us stood there numbly, reminiscing about the impact that John Winston Lennon had on our lives. As we know, and as we see time and time again, it makes total sense that Paul would want to come into the studio that day and work, rather than being at home with his thoughts. It's also more than serendipitous that Paul would have been working with Martin and Emmerich at this time, and thankfully I couldn't think of better people for Paul to have been with at that time, outside of maybe George and Ringo, of course. Speaking of bandmates, though, Denny Lane was also there, and he agreed with Emmerich's sentiments when speaking about that day, with Jeffrey Giuliano in his book. Lane said, Now this was a strange thing that happened was, I went to work sort of knowing, I sort of knew that Paul would come into work anyway, 
Because the best way to deal with anything like that is to keep working, to take your mind off it as much as possible, be around your friends. And although I expected a call to say, Paul won't be coming into work today, I kind of knew in the back of my mind that he probably would be there, maybe later, whatever. But anyway, he'd actually driven up from Sussex and turned up. And as usual, you know, noon, we were sitting there and he went, I don't believe it. He was obviously physically shaken. He didn't know what to say, really. He didn't know how to say things. And we were looking out the window, you know, Air Studios, like six floors up in Oxford Circus, looking right down on the middle of London. And down at the bottom, a truck went by, a dark green truck went by, and, and it said, Lennon Furnishing, or something like that, Lennon something. And I went, oh, look at that. And then he started to talk, and he said, look, I tell you something, I'm never going to fall out with anybody again in my life for that amount of time and have the possibility of somebody dying before I get the chance to square it with them. Now, some of you may be sat there thinking that it's quite ironic that Paul might be saying this to Denny Lane, a man who he kind of had a big falling out with, and we don't know if it's been repaired. But anyway, let's not get mired in that conversation. After those sessions, where McCartney did actually take the time to call Yoko and offer his condolences, he left Air Studios and was, predictably, mobbed by the reporters. This is where one of the most iconic McCartney moments ever happened. Still numb with grief, the distracted and dejected Macca, when asked about John's death, commented, It's a drag, isn't it? Okay, cheers, bye. And those words would haunt him for the next decade. The media and fans alike would see this as a very uncaring or even callous comment from Paul. Though people for years would forget that, you know, McCartney was not thinking clearly at the time. He was obviously very hurt, very upset. And people were probably leaning into the Lennon-McCartney rivalry angle of the whole thing when interpreting his comment. And it's one of the moments of uh, least charity ever shown by the fandom towards Paul. None of us really met him on his level there. And it's a bit of a stain, really. It really is. Though... I say fans, it probably was more the media and the general public that felt this. But it really was a stumbling block in Paul's flawless public image. When speaking on Good Morning Britain about the whole affair, Paul said, I was probably more shattered than most people when John died, and I had plenty of sort of personal grief, but I'm not very good at a kind of public grief. So someone thrust a microphone into my face the day it happened and said, What's your comment? Now, all the other pundits came out with great comments. Well, John will sorely be missed and so-and-so. They summed it up. All I could muster was, it's a drag. And it was like, I couldn't say anything else but that. I just couldn't. Nor could George, nor could Ringo. Nobody came out with any big comments because he was too dear to us. It was just too much of a shock. But, of course, then he got reprinted. McCartney, when asked about what he thought of Lennon's death, said, it's a drag, and it comes out like that. So you've just got to be so careful about all that stuff. Now, whilst it's a shame that this momentous event overshadows this song, which it does objectively, at least it doesn't stain it. Thankfully, as a consolation prize, the greatest thing that this song has going for it is the fact that only the overdubs were done on this day. This means the main chunk of the track was recorded in Innocence the day before John died, and so 
on this day, Paul was free to take it easy with the technical stuff and the recording of other musicians. And with that, after far more background information than even I anticipated for this segment, we could finally get back to talking about the song itself. And you know what? It does seem that this song, because of the Titanic backstory that we've just detailed, sets itself up for failure. People might expect this to be up there with the likes of Here Today, and they are going to be sorely disappointed. But fortunately, I'm not one of those people. And instead, I appreciate Rain Clouds for what it is. A lovely little B-side. Nothing more, nothing less. As I've mentioned, compositionally, the song is incredibly basic, and it relies on McCartney's performance and production rather than words or instrumentation. Macca, with his natural charm and captivating vocal delivery, along with the regal, grand-scale production, elevate the material entirely beyond its apparent mediocrity. Like, the whole song just oozes McCartney charisma. And even though I know he's just manipulating me, I really don't mind. Also, as you know, I am someone who is still learning to play guitar at a snail's pace, and songs like this, with their simple, easy-to-follow chord structure, are a godsend. Paul's guitar playing himself on the actual track is just so bright and sunny. It's a wonderful contrast against the concept of the rain. You, know, you can imagine the rays breaking through the clouds. The drums are absolutely massive. Though, it does seem to me like there's no bass on this track at all. Uh, if someone could fill me in on that. Lyrically, this song right away comes across as one of those McCartney tunes that, for better or worse, doesn't really have much going on below the surface. And... Upon closer inspection, actually, that really is what it is. It is a song made up almost entirely out of standardised McCartney visual metaphors. On the one hand, we have the ocean and the rain, and tears, now that I think about it. And on the other hand, we have the sun. None of this makes for a bad song, of course. If anything, the lyrics are trying to be as stripped back and simple as possible, and I can always appreciate that. Though... I think why I have such an emotional connection with this song is because of my dad. Yes, we're going to have another little sad moment on this song, folks. Not only can Paul be sad about this song because of a death, but I can as well. Um, my dad always used to talk about uh, the rain and clouds. He had what is known as SADS, the seasonal affective disorder, and he was always bummed out by clouds. But he would always talk about how the sun was above the clouds and, you know, if you just fly high enough, there's always some sunshine there. And I think that's why this metaphor, this this visual cue has always stuck with me so much. Also, it cannot be ignored that there is a level of cosmic irony that Paul would be singing about a rainy day, like the day that John was shot. I mean, Paul's performance is so bright and uplifting you would wonder if he would ever be able to sing that way again. Something that should also be noted is that we have an, another odd Macca spelling moment with rain clouds. And I can't remember if, if this is the last one since the spelling of Vandy slash Vanderbilt in Mrs. Vanderbilt. But yeah, the phrase rain clouds is typically two separate words, but it is stylized here as a single word for the single. Of course, the standout instrumental moment in this song is the enlivening wind instrument solo. Now, I say wind instrument because I thought it was some bagpipes that Paul had worked his studio magic on. But no, 
what you're actually hearing are the Illin Pipes, played by Paddy Maloney. And if that name was enough of a giveaway, yes, the Illin Pipes are indeed an Irish instrument, one that I imagine a scouser like McCartney would have been more than familiar with as a young man. Maloney recollects the day as thus. I was at the BBC World Service and I'd heard on the news about John at 5am at home in Dublin. I called early morning to ask whether I should still come over or not. The studio said come on over, so I got the plane to London. I got there about 1 or 2pm near Oxford Circus. Paul and me talked a bit, and he didn't say too much about what had happened. I hadn't heard rain clouds before I got to the studio. I came up with a couple of ideas, and Paul said, go on, play that. I played what would be the bridge of the song. I felt very emotional while I was playing rain clouds, putting more into what I usually did. A little lift from heaven, perhaps. And yes, everyone, the Illin Pipes in this song, spelt U-I-L-L-E-A-N-N, Illin Pipes, is easily the most emotively stirring part of the song. And when I mentioned the bagpipes earlier, that's because it gave me that same kind of Mull of Kintyre, rule Britannia, proud to be British kind of feeling. Though, as semi-controversial as it would be to say that about Scotland, I'm definitely now not going to say that about an Irish instrument. And there we are, folks. That's Rain Clouds. Yet another song that, when I first started this episode, I was worried whether I was even going to fill up a single page of notes, and we've done just over three. That's what I love about Paul's expansive discography. Being a successful, popular tune doesn't always guarantee that it's the most interesting song to talk about, and Rain Clouds is exactly that. It's the little engine that could... And finally, everyone, we are two for two as we close out today's episode with another tug-of-war B-side that is completely off the chain. Despite being rejected earlier in its life, it found absolution after being officially vetted by George Martin himself. And that song is I'll Give You a Ring. You look a little lonely Maybe I can meet you Tell me where to reach you, and I'll give you rain. I take you to the pictures, I miss a second feature. Lord, I can't believe my eyes, I must be dreaming. Give me your number. Okay, I know we're near the end of the episode now, but fuck me, am I fired up to talk about this one. Yes, I do prefer the album of McCartney 2 to Tug of War in almost every single way, but the one thing Tug of War does do as well as McCartney 2 is have some absolute bangers for the B-side material. In terms of the release stuff, these two albums are on par for me, and it really is indicative of the McCartney B-side renaissance that we, as fans, would have been enjoying since Back to the Egg. I mean, it's getting to a point whereby I'm quite consistently preferring the B-sides to the A-sides, and that could not be more appropriate as in the case of I'll Give You a Ring here, for I adore this track with a fiery passion that its A-side, Take It Away, only wishes it could produce. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. I probably 
should have first covered this song on a much earlier episode, as this track goes at least all the way back to 1973, 1972, with Paul having apparently recorded a demo for the track that is still yet to be bootlegged slash released officially. Now, whilst this mystery demo may actually have been the version that we hear on the 1974 home piano tapes recording bootleg, the point of the matter is that the song was clearly on his mind in the year of 1974, for it was also that year that it appeared as part of the piano medley in the One Hand Clapping TV special. However, things get even more complicated, as it's possible that Paul may have also recorded an even more professional demo of the song during the sessions for the McGear album. And on top of that, to make it even more complicated, apparently the track that they all recorded during the McGear sessions was actually the final recording that they used during the Tug of War sessions. One of the potential clues for this is the presence of clarinet player Tony Coe, who appears on I'll Give You a Ring, as well as Leave It, a song from the McGear album. Now, we know this song is about Paul giving rings, but something he likes to give away more than a ring is a song, and he wants to give it to an established artist so that they can put their own spin on it and help their career, help his career, stroke his ego, and help line his coffers. It is a grand tradition. Though that is not the only tradition that I'll Give You a Ring is part of, it is also part of two other hallowed halls, that being Let's Get Married songs and Give Me a Call on the Telephone kind of songs. The funny thing is, though, is that Paul is planning to give this song away and he is working to an order, but he doesn't actually have an order or request from any particular person to start such an endeavour. This means that Paul can have a specific song with a specific idea for a specific artist and they can be entirely unaware of his machinations. Actually, let's just hear Paul put it that way himself. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I always loved Peggy Lee's voice and uh, in my record collection at that time, I had a couple of Peggy Lee records. Uh, so when I heard that she was coming to London, um, I thought I'd roll myself in on a dinner invitation and rather than take around a bottle of champagne, I took her a song. There you go. You look a little lonely. Maybe I can meet you. Tell me where to reach you. And I'll give you a ring. I'll take you to the pictures. We'll miss a second feature. Lord, I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Give me your number, I'll give you a ring You look a little lonely, maybe I can reach you Tell me where to meet you, and I'll give you a ring I'll take you to the pictures, or miss a second feature Lord, I can't believe my eyes, I must be dreaming Give me your number Maybe I can meet you Tell me where to reach you And I'll give you a ring I'll take you to the pictures 
will miss a second feature Lord, I can't believe my eyes I must be dreaming Give me your number I'll give you a ring Oh, give me your number I'll give you a ring So yeah, our Paulie was seemingly very confident in himself with this move, and I imagine it was something that he'd either done before or thought about doing as some sort of slick play for some time. But it didn't work out that way, did it? No, Peggy Lee did not choose to record I'll Give You a Ring, and Paul would continue to noodle on the song for years with it remaining unreleased. However, I think this time off is actually what benefited the song. I mean, first of all, the huge delay meant that by the time Paul actually wanted to work on the song, it was tug of war, and so George Martin was now producing it, which in itself is a huge boon to any tune, but it also allowed Macca to refine this track a little and properly finish it off. Paul was using a lot of his backlog around this period. Mullican Tire and Girlfriend popped up in 78, Million Miles and Rockestra theme were used on Back to the Egg, and in almost every case, the song was vastly improved. The same going for this. First of all, you get the addition of the bridge, aka the Whoa Man segment, that is oh so sorely missing from all the early versions of the tune. This caps the progression of the song off nicely, and it allows the song to actually reach its three minute length properly. The harmonies in this segment are also another highlight, and they are a stellar example of the uniquely gorgeous, multi-layered tug-of-war era harmonies. Then you get the addition of all the other instrumentation, and thank God George Martin was here to beef this tune up, because I don't think I would have fallen in love with it in the same way if it was just a bare-bones piano tune. The electric guitar and the little riff at the end of each phrase is just as rousing and thrilling as they were on the title track, Tug of War, the bass adds a proper element of guts and balls to what is dangerously close to being a show tune. Those synthy flutes are fucking great. And right at the end, we get some really gated, echoey Simon and Garfunkel snare drum sounds thrown in there for good measure. Again, like some of the ambient songs from earlier in this episode, something that's quite bare as the original version of I'll Give You a Ring does require the kitchen sink approach and thus is entirely salvageable. However, that is not to say that the song was necessarily bad in its earlier stages, just that it was unfinished. Though, don't get me wrong, it's not unfinished on the same level as Stop, You Don't Know Where She Came From. The demo slash early version of I'll Give You a Ring still has a lot of what I love about the song, such as the immediately catchy and memorable piano riff, Paul's incredible playing, as well as the, I don't know, the entire clever conceit and lyrical wordplay of the song. Yes, I guess I can now finally talk about one of my favourite lame things in the world, which is, of course, puns, and fuck me, is the main conceit of this song ever a bloody good pun. I know this is all sort of obvious, non-subtext uh, stuff, but I just want everyone to appreciate how bloody clever it is for a moment. Like, let's just break this down for a second. This song is about giving a girl a ring, as in calling her on the telephone, but it's also about giving her a ring, as in to marry her. Like, Paul has always had a talent for writing songs that you really can't believe aren't covers of older, like, American hits, and that is exactly what you get here. 
I mean, come on, folks. How did it take until the early 1970s for a writer to realise that particular word-based punny quirk? Still, it makes sense that, that it was our boy Paul who found it, and I'm glad it was him, because such a corny concept could only ever have been pulled off by him, especially during this period of musical history. As corny as it is to say, though, I do actually like the cutesy old-world depiction of the courtship process in this song, and what with the state of modern dating, it's hard not to feel a little longing and nostalgic for such simplicity. Though, I, know, I get it, it's all rose-tinted glasses stuff, but that's what Paul does so well. Also, just going back to the idea of Peggy Lee turning this song down, not only was the song clearly unfinished in the state that he presented it to her, but also maybe an older artist, an old-school artist like Peggy Lee, would be reluctant to sing a song where she would be giving the ring to a man rather than the other way around? Maybe not, just a thought I just had. And just before we close out, I do feel like I've neglected the piano part of this song because it's the best bit in the demo and in the final version. It's so immediately enjoyable as it taps into that Lady Madonna, Martha My Dear, Obladi Oblada kind of piano energy that we all wish she would do more of. And yeah, I know technically John did the piano intro for Obladi, but you know what I'm talking about. That inherently classic, upbeat, catchy bashing of the notes that makes it feel like Paul is, A, physically getting you excited, and you can feel your heart rate increasing, but also that like he's tapping into a song that you've always known about. Like It feels like this should be some American songbook standard that is already 70 years old by, by the time he approaches it, but no, he's just that good at evoking the past, and God, he can do things with those piano keys. My gosh. Sadly, the greatest obstacle that this song had in terms of being included on the final album was its cousin, Ballroom Dancing. And sadly, folks, Ballroom Dancing is objectively better in every way, and it was always going to be unlikely that two Tin Pan Alley vaudeville musical Paul McCartney songs would ever appear on one album, especially for his rebrand, reboot album. Anyway. Right, everyone! We are finally done. Oh my gosh, this episode was so fucking long. Um, I always try to do like 14 songs for Hot Hits and Cold Cuts. And the next episode will have 14 songs as well. But I did not picture myself writing this many notes about this many songs. Like normally two or three or four of the songs have big essays around them and then the rest of them are like a page long. But I think only one of the songs here today, here today, was a single page long. Everything else, unfortunately, had a lot for me to say about it. But, you know, we've made it through to the other side, folks. And I hope you've had some fun. I've definitely had a lot of fun putting this episode together. I've been introduced to a lot of songs. I've re-familiarised myself with a lot of others from his back catalogue. And I hope, at the end of it, you've learnt a little bit as well. Thank you all for joining me for the episode of Paul or Nothing. We've been going through Hot Hits and Cold Cuts. This is our seventh episode of that. Next time, we'll be covering all of the pipes of peace and give my regards to Broad Street content that will be the next actual episode uh, the next actual episode which will be uploaded on time on Wednesday will be another pre-recorded one that I've had in the bag for a while and after that who knows folks I've got a lot in the pipeline but until then peace and love peace and love no more autographs Harry Harry Krishna play us out Denny
Second feature, Lord, I can't believe my eyes. Are- 